Hey, Paisan. Hey. What's the matter for you? Oh. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I'm okay. How you doing? You look a little right. down with that uh, iPod thing you got there. Yeah, I'm really mad about the iPod. First of all, um, with the Italian accents there, first of all, I want to just... Uh, Ask my ask my brother. Do you approve of those Italian accents? I mean, <laughs> should we keep doing them? There you go. All right. I'm in a bit of a mood today because this week I found out that Apple has discontinued the iPod Touch, the only iPod they were still manufacturing. Now, I personally, it was a big iPod classic fan, you know, because it only played music and that was it. Mm. And I just want this device around for playing music. And though the iPod Touch had the added benefit of, you know, had uh, Bluetooth on it, you can play like podcasts and, uh, you know, it had the internet on it too, but it didn't have a phone, which is great because as listeners to this podcast know, um, I I really don't ever use the phone because uh, I don't have any friends because I don't like people. So I stay stay in my house all day listening to music. But now they've discontinued the iPod Touch. Um, The thing that makes me so mad... Oh, man. I don't even know where to start. The thing that makes me so mad about that is the iPod Touch was... Or the iPod in general was primarily for music. That's why it was invented. So you could carry music around with you. And this goes all the way back to the Sony Walkman with the cassette tapes that we had in the... uh, It was the 80s or the late 70s? When did that come out? 1979, I believe that came out. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then that went to the Discman, and those always skipped. And then we had the uh, iPod Touch, and uh, you had had posted a picture of your old um, iPod Classic with the actual buttons on it. I uh, pre-ordered that, I think. I got the first one when it came out, the five gigabyte moving hard disk brick for your pocket. Yep. Yeah, that was a real brick, that yeah. thing. A giant hard drive in it. <laughs> and, you know, I think it still works. Yeah. I, I did test it out a few years ago, but then I realized uh, I don't have a computer with a uh, FireWire jack anymore. So I don't know where you would plug it. You'd need an adapter or something, you know. Yeah, I, you need, I need the uh, – I still have one of those 30-pin wires around somewhere. I have three iPod Classics. The earliest one I got was the 60-gigabyte ones. And I always had an issue – with them in the beginning, especially with yours, because they only played songs. And I, I'm an album person, as you right. know. I mean, because I want, you know, if I'm listening also to uh, classical music, you're going to want these four movement symphonies to continue mm-hmm. to the end. So uh, I was really in, into those. And I was, and there used to be a gap between tracks. And I always hated that, you know. Right. But they right. finally fixed that. And now everything is great. And now they discontinued it. So what do they want us to do? They want us to get an iPhone. But what's the iPhone for? It's for communication. It's for internet use. And it's almost like Apple is saying music isn't important anymore. And um, I beg to differ. I mean, it's really my whole life. <laughs> you know? It's well, that, that. I read a lot of books. That's basically what I do. So <laughs> It's kind of unfortunate. I mean, you can buy a... Uh you know, a music player and they various yeah. companies make, you know, these ones in high res. Of course, Neil, Neil Young had his uh, Pono player or whatever. And yeah. uh, these other companies make it, you know, in the name of convenience, uh, this uh, Swiss army knife of communications and digital things has uh, laid to rest lots of other cool products yeah. that we had, like the digital camera. Who buys a compact digital camera anymore? Yeah. Um, almost no one because they think that, you know, the smartphone is good enough. And it's good enough for most, you know, things. Taking pictures of your lunch or your cat that nobody wants to see. But it's not as good as a, you know, a real camera. 
And um, yeah, it's too bad that uh, it does take some pretty high quality pictures. Yeah, it though. does, but the development of you know these special specialized devices is uh, come grinding to a halt, or because of the sales, you know, um, you won't see young people with a music. Right. That's a and that's a real shame. That's all we did when we were younger was listen to music, I and mean, we would get together and talk about new albums yeah. and things like that. You know, I have this nice little Sony recorder. They don't make it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it'll even record in twenty uh, four bit high res, but I use it for recording gigs. Yeah, uh, other things, and you can. Right, you can I've seen that thing. Yeah, I've, I've come out and uh, I took it yeah. out, and uh, you know, some uh, a young guy like around eighteen, nineteen. So he said, "Wow, that's huge." I mean, it, it's, it's <laughs> about three small. quarters of the size of a pack of cigarettes. And you can get a really decent live <laughs> recording out of it, you know. And I just thought, well, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. If that's we're, huge. Uh, we're at the mercy of young people's whims, which we kind of knew would happen because uh, that had, you know, that happened yeah. to us when we were younger. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like they're just saying, okay, music isn't our thing anymore. And the thing about the iPod Touch was, it was also compatible with Apple things and they would support it and it was just all yeah. really easy, you know, and it was great. Well, what I think it is, you know, they probably weren't selling as many of them. Yeah. And then what I don't like about the kind of Apple approach, it's like with their Apple Music, right? Mm. It's basically a loss leader to sell more devices. Right. Um, they don't care if they make money on streaming. And I think right. that uh, Apple Music and Amazon are looking to kind of squeeze up Spotify and other right, you had mentioned yeah other yeah. platforms that actually are focusing more on the content. I think Apple just does it because they can, and yeah. uh, that's why you can't play Apple Music on you know any other kind of uh, device. Unlike what you can do with you know, have Deezer built into yeah. a network player, and you know you're not going to see that with Apple Music. So as much as I right. I you know enjoy Apple products, I have a lot of them. I like well, I, yeah, but I feel like they're kind of they're they're running out of ideas. I feel like because yeah. what, what's their their big product is still the iPhone. I mean, how old is that thing? Well, because you're supposed also, to buy a new one every year, Michael. Yeah, but here's the thing. Also, who you know, they say I, I read people online saying, "Oh, I've never seen anybody using an iPod Touch, so I guess I'm nobody now." Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but it looks just like an iPhone. But, anyway. but here's the thing: people use an iPhone, but who uses it as, as a phone? <laughs> nobody. They, they just it text like on a, it anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's like they should get rid of the iPhone. They should – and just make like a small version of the iPad and call it the uh, the super mini iPad. And that then that would be the, the same <laughs> thing as an iPod Touch basically. Right. You know, because uh, nobody uses the phone. <laughs> yeah. There are all these apps that you can use, that, you know, to, on, on the uh, you know on the iPad anyway to talk to yeah. people. Yeah, it's really can. crazy. They should they should discontinue the iPhone. There, I've said it. You want to be bold, Apple? That's what you should do. You know what I think you need? Uh, did you mm. see that? And when you sent me that ad, there was the next ad under that. And yeah. uh, it said uh, why you should be using your uh, smart watch as your music <laughs> player. So I think, you know, that's oh, in your gosh. future, an iPhone and uh, an Apple Watch. Yeah. Well, wearing like a, a player like on your wrist actually isn't a bad idea, but... The, yeah. the the whole I've never gotten into the idea of having the time on your wrist. I mean, why, I don't understand that. Why would you want that? I like that. <laughs> oh no, uh, it organizes my life. But I do it with little mechanical gears. So. Do you actually have an Apple Watch? No, no, no. I would never have no. a smartwatch. No, I have all mechanical watches, a whole box of them. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know because like then you got this watch on your left arm, and then the your shirt sleeve has to be. You have to use the other button because it, it won't fit under your sleeve or whatever. It's all part know. of my retro vibe, man. It That's just seems really like. weird. Speaking of retro vibes, these people online who are saying things like, oh, the iPod Touch, it's so old, they should get rid of it. These people listen to vinyl records. What are they talking <laughs> about? Yeah. <laughs> talking about old. God. It's an anyway, upside-down world out there. It is an upside-down world. Anyway. But here we are to... Uh, Put it up right. Adult music. Uh, yeah. That's what you're listening to. The music adults should be listening to. This is the podcast <laughs> with music for the mature mind. And this is episode 63. Wow. Here every week, bringing you around six new recordings, uh, mostly in classical and jazz, some other surprises, and commentary on all things related to making, listening to, and Yeah, we should say music. our names, by the way. Uh, that's... Uh, uh, the you? person without an iPhone over there is Mike. That's me. I'm Mike. Okay. And this is Russ over here. On and this Russ side. with the suave voice over there. The suave voice over here. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, episode 63. Before we get into it, uh, I actually have some uh, smartphone-related news. Um, before I get to that, I want to remind all of our listeners that uh, in the episode description... You're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for the music that we'll talk about. So if you want to listen to that before or after uh, you listen to the podcast, it's all right there, uh, just a click away. Uh, also, at the top of the description, you can get all the music in one long playlist that we put on our preferred streaming uh, platform, Deezer. Uh, CD quality sound, uh, nice catalog for classical and jazz. You can also check out the podcast. It's on Deezer as well. Just look up Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the full description with the links uh, and information on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come to our host site, which is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and all the links for the episodes are there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. Uh, take a moment, give us a ranking, give us five stars. Yeah, give us ranking. a five-star review. You don't have to give a review, just give us five stars because it helps us in the algorithms, yeah. please. Those yeah. mystical algorithms that bring us above the K-pop podcast, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, and that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. We've been at the, near the top of Podbean uh, for a couple of weeks. We float in and out of Apple, uh, but we always enjoy... Uh, getting new listeners. Uh, oh, yeah. You can also see the podcast on uh, Facebook. Uh, we have a page there. Look up Adult Music Podcast. You can see our handsome uh, faces there, all the past episodes, and uh, usually put up some amusing links or videos of the music that we're going to yeah, have. Yeah, we've been posting there lately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've got uh, two for this week's jazz there, and you've got your CDs up there. And yeah. a little prelude to the uh, iPod now, you know uh, rant. If, yeah. if if I was sensible, I would just, like you, listen to these things on Deezer first and then you know buy the CDs later if I like them. But I, I just buy the CDs because I just like having CDs to listen to. I really enjoy that. Well, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> nothing wrong. Well, there is something wrong. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I don't really have the income to yeah. be able to do this. But I do it anyway because you only live once. Right. Anyway. And uh, other than the Facebook page, if you want to uh, contact us directly, any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is 
adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And I'd like to give a special welcome to our new listeners on Samsung Podcasts. Uh, I guess this is a feature that's part of their uh, free media app on the Galaxy phones. And uh, they've just added podcasts to that. So I put us in there through the Podbean app. And we've gotten lots of downloads uh, through uh, Samsung this week. So Yeah, thank you for that, everybody. Yeah, new listeners, uh, welcome. Uh, Happy to have you here. And uh, we've also just signed on to Podchaser and iHeartRadio. Oh, uh, I know some of iHeartRadio's podcasts. I've heard yeah. a few of them. I can't think of anything else that we're not on now. So hopefully we'll be getting some... Uh, new listeners on who use those other platforms and uh, yeah welcome so i was thinking if you're uh, hey what's the matter you you know because i it reminded me of that song from the 70s like shut up your face you remember that oh, one yeah yeah yeah. i think i got that one from the old bugs bunny uh skin, oh I, hey what's about me what's the matter what's the matter for you give me my pizza, my cacciatore too something like that <laughs> There's a guy. There's a guy. There's a guy, Luigi, also on The Simpsons, who does it. Hey, I'm making the <laughs> right. pizza. You know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the reason we're doing this today is because we have an Italian theme. As mm-hmm. um, people who have seen us on Facebook would know, we posted a few things about that, and uh, it's just all uh, Italian music this week. That's right, hundred percent. Yeah, and that's usually a good thing. And uh, it pretty much was this week too. It was mm-hmm. yeah, it was all good. Some of it was better than others, I thought. But we'll get to that as it comes down. All right. Now before we um, get into the music, we have another segment of musical necrology this week. And musical necrology now has a theme. So Russ, would you play that theme, please? Let's roll it. Okay, now what that what you just heard is um, the uh, melody or the opening melody for the uh, Dies Irae, a Gregorian chant that's used in the uh, Catholic uh, Mass Church Mass of Mass for the Dead. And uh, if you listen to classical music, that's um, part that should be part of your musical vocabulary because um, it's an important it's it's an important motif in a lot of works. It, you hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to, for example, Berlioz's um, Symphony Fantastique, in the fourth movement it comes up. Mm-hmm. And whenever you hear it, it's it means um, death, basically. It's a, it's a right. signal of death. I think it was also used in, um, it was a play, it was also used um, ad nauseum in that um, monstrous piece we heard on the uh, the Shostakovich oh, yeah. recording, right? <laughs> who was who, the Scottish composer? I can't remember his name now. Yeah. Oh, boy, he really beat it to death, but, uh, yeah. you know, but you'll often hear it as like a signal of death, and especially 19th century music, uh, death comes yeah. up as a theme a lot. They were really into uh, into that. If you think yeah. about like he- like heavy metal today, like, you know, a lot of the, uh, or death metal, some of the themes they have, and you're wondering, gee, why would you make music about death? Well, there you go. I mean, there it still go. exists today. It's just in a different kind of music. Yeah, there's no copyright on that because I recorded yeah. it in... 10 seconds on the piano when right, I had learned it back in seminary school. So, right. And it's uh, 1500 years old. So yeah, no, the composer is long dead there. We actually do know who wrote that melody, by the way. Um, but I can't remember this <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> I could find out. I actually have it in a note somewhere, but I didn't, I didn't write it down. Anyway, who died? Uh, who died? Um, Teresa Berganza. 
died this week. She was a Spanish mezzo-soprano. She was Spanish. Um, and she died on uh, May 13th, two days ago. Well, depending on when you're listening yeah. to this podcast. We're, we're recording on the uh, the evening of the 15th in Japan, which right. uh, is pretty much the morning of the 15th in the U.S. So um, she was 89 years old, so a good long mm. life. A lot of these um, opera singers live for a really long time. They must get a lot of oxygen in their system. That, that must be singing. it. It's the Could breathing. Be. But they also get a lot of food. You know, they have that... Um, mm. Somebody once described the Pavarotti as having a room-filling voice and uh, stage-filling girth, which is <laughs> kind of goes with the territory. It did. Yeah. Um, but Gonza wasn't... She didn't have stage-filling girth. She was... Um, she she kept okay. She sang a lot of Italian opera, and she was um, one of her greatest roles was um, Carmen Bizet's right. Carmen, a very very sexy role with one of the great arias of all time. So rest in peace, Teresa Berganza. We don't cover a lot of uh, we don't cover opera at all really on this podcast. I'm thinking if I could get somebody who. Um, Likes opera a lot. We could talk about one opera recording a week. I would be willing to do that, but uh, it's that uh, that would be another podcast because I think it would t- it takes too much time. Mm. There's so many voices, and it takes a long time to listen so, to an opera. Have to explain, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we're kind of limiting ourselves to uh, the occasional vocal album, <laughs> so right. of which we have none this week, surprisingly, in spite of having an Italian theme. Um, much Italian music is based on um, melody. It's that's the the great Italian um, gift to the world is mm. is melody. They they they're very they we can I say being American or Italian American are a very melodic people. <laughs> I've always thought of you as a melodic guy. Yeah. Yeah, I am melodic. <laughs> <laughs> among other things that I'm always and among neurotic. other things. Yeah, neurotic, <laughs> melodic. Psychotic. I got all the icks. <laughs> the the girl the ladies just think of me as ick. Ick. Yeah. <laughs> He's such an icky guy. <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah, that's that's adult music humor right there. We're we're, there we're one step we're one step above uh, science humor here. Okay, or mathematician <laughs> humor. Actually, musician humor is pretty bad. I've heard a, yeah. a lot of like music scholars have like these terrible jokes that they tell. So there you go. You won't see me on the comedy stage anytime soon. Anyway. So we have, uh, we usually start with classical music. We start in as far back uh, in time as we can. And that week, that's going to mean that we're going to listen to a, can I call this Baroque? It's more in the Galant style, cello sonatas by two brothers named Giovanni and Antonio Maria Bononcini. And uh, this is um, performed by Accademia Ottoboni. Um, directed and solo cello by Marco Ceccato and that's on the French Alpha label okay so Bononcini is not really one of those names that uh, most people are going to know um, unless you listen to vocal music because um, they're, they're pretty famous for their vocal music sounds like a condiment to me or something a yeah, condiment? can I have some uh, Bononcini with that yeah put some more Bononcini in this <laughs> I think a lot of Italian names do, it's, yeah. you know, so there you go. Mm. All right, so the Bononcini brothers, uh, Giovanni was the older one, and uh, he was um, seven years older than Antonio Maria. They they call him Antonio Maria, not just Antonio, I don't know why. Huh. But um, Antonio Maria was um, seven years younger than him, and he uh, died twenty years be- 21 years before Giovanni, so Giovanni oh. was the longer-lived one. 
uh, including being the older one. Mm. And um, they were uh, considered to be among the most outstanding cello virtuosos of their time. And today they're better known as composers of vocal music, as I said, and uh, are among the best representatives of the Galant style. Now, the Galant style uh, came while Bach was alive. Um, the Bononcini brothers were contemporaries of Bach. And in fact, I, I kind of noticed a Bach um, similarity in this, which I'll point out when I get to it. Um, the Galant style was kind of like the... Uh, it led into the classical style. Now, the Galant style was mostly um, surface show. It was mm. pleasant, enjoyable by people. This this really arose because um, suddenly the the working man, and I don't mean like the construction working man. I mean the the banker, the uh, <laughs> the you know the uh, the sort of professional had uh, more free time and more money, and he wanted to hear some music. And uh, so th there were works being composed for them, and they were pretty. They were much, pretty much gestural. They weren't really philosophically deep. That wouldn't happen mm. until Haydn and then later Mozart. And I guess we can include Ranitsky now, <laughs> as we yeah. talk about him a lot, in the classical style, which kind of developed um, harmony mm. further into a more narrative style. Um, so this is really just pleasant music. There's not really much um, depth to it, but it's really enjoyable and really yeah. beautiful. Great tones. Yeah, and, and this, al this particular album is pretty yeah. great, too. Um, so they're the Galant style. Incidentally, of the two brothers, Antonio Maria, the younger one, had the more virtuosic and elaborate style of composition. Hmm. Okay, so anyway, on this album, Acad Academia Ottoboni, um, there are four, well, there are five instruments, but only four players. And um, there's Marco Cecato. He's the solo cellist throughout and also the director of the four-member ensemble, of which he's one of them. Um, Simone Valarotonda plays the theorbo, which is kind of a how would you call it? It's kind of like a, a it's a long guitar necked kind of thing, guitar yeah. type instrument. Um, Anna Fontana on the harpsichord, and Rebecca Ferri on uh, the uh, low cello. So she's playing the basso continuo. Now, there's also an organ on the recording, yeah. um, which it goes uncredited. We don't know who's playing it. Oh. Now, when the organ plays, there's no harpsichord, so I'm guessing Anna Fontana is playing the organ, doubling on the organ. But the the album doesn't indicate that, so I really don't know. Hmm. That's just a guess. And I have to say, though, I'm glad the organ is on there because it's it's one of the highlights of this pretty fantastic album, really, hmm. uh, or very enjoyable album. So the first um, piece on this is Sinfonia per Violoncello, that's the cello, the Italian word for cello, in G minor. And that's by uh, Giovanni, the older brother. Uh, this starts out... These are all very short movements, by the mm. way. It starts out with an adagio. And uh, I immediately took a liking to the rich, upholstered tone that came out of the speakers. So I was like, oh, this feels good. The cello is very upfront. Uh, there's a rich-sounding organ continuo. The, the organ really makes when when the organ appears. It's not in every piece, but it really does uh, enrich yeah. the the whole sound of the ensemble on this album. I really loved hearing it every time it was on. So whoever was playing it had a a good sound and a good sense of what to play, because uh, a lot of these continuos they're not written out note for note like a modern piano score would be. They mm -hmm. they give you chords and you have to sort of shape the chords yourself. Right. Um, and 
Okay, and the uh, pluck continuo instruments register through sharply defined cello continuo and organ. I like the way this the cello is playing the the bass, and then the organ will double it. So you'll kind of sometimes get a not in this particular movement, but you'll get like a pizzicato on the bass, and then the organ sound will continue, and it's just really magical. Okay, so we get a brief, slow, mournful first movement. Then we go on to the allegro movement, which is more lively with the organ playing at a higher range, uh, making it very discreet here. Um, along with the soloist, uh, the uh, basso continuo cello and theorbo. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't even know how to say that. The theorbo. Register more strongly. I like the arrangement and choice of instruments here in this whole piece, really. In the Largo movement, the third movement, track three, the long-breathed organ, the long-breathed organ, takes the continuo as the solo cello continues in a lovely legato line. Beautiful melody. And the, mm -hmm. the orbo provides some twinkling harmonic underpinning, or really decoration, I'd say here. A soothing and calming movement. Check that out. The fourth movement is a minuet, and that's kind of an odd way to end a work because a minuet isn't really so emphatic it's kind of tends to be very elegant here the organ and cello combine in an interesting way for the basso continuo part which is the bass line the cello plays a pizzicato note and the organ duplicates it this is what i was talking about at the beginning in its deep endless breath and the cello solo solo is active it saws away at the jumpy melody you can really hear the attack on this particular piece um, and that's not a bad thing. This is a pretty good beginning to this work. I really liked that they had the organ in the first work. We move on to a composition by Antonio Maria, the younger brother. This is a sonata a violoncello solo. So it's not only a violoncello, a cello. It's got an ensemble in it in G major. All right, so a sonata would be a more chamber-like work, I guess, if they call it a sonata. And here the harpsichord comes in. We hear that. Uh, it accompanies the solo cello, and there's a theorbo in this too. Mm -hmm. This first movement, the Largo, reminded me of something from Bach. One of the, uh, it, 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 I, I, I'm wondering if Bach kind of heard this or had the score and kind of said it in his own way, or vice versa. It's hard to say, mm. really. But it seems to have been, these these kind of themes tended to be passed around back in the day in the Baroque era. Second movement, Allegro, has an active cello figuration, uh, less aggressive. Then in the first work um, by uh, Antonio, oh no, this is Antonio, sorry, by Giovanni, with uh, harpsichord accompaniment, um, some cello, basso continuo as well. Third movement, adagio. Uh, this is another, sh these are all short movements, by the way. <laughs> this adagio is only 54 <laughs> seconds long. It's like over before you even realize it started. Uh, it features another lovely legato theme on the solo cello. It's a duet and features the second cello playing an accompaniment. There's nothing else. Just kind of an interesting change mm -hmm. in uh, timbre. Ends on an open cadence, leading to the fourth movement, Saraband, another odd way to end the work. Um, to be honest, though, the, this is pretty fast for a Saraband. They're usually kind of slow, stately dances, but I guess the Italian idea of them was a little different. Um, it's a moderate speed, and uh, it's immediately appealing, melodic material, um, as we would expect from the Gallant style, and from an Italian Gallant style especially. Um, both Bononcinis were apparently gifted in the melodic, in the area of mel melody. They wrote a lot of songs after all. And this is a rather cheerful movement, which is a mood not usually associated with the traditional Spanish Sarabande. Mm. But maybe the Italian one kind of 
you know, they, I think they were different types, really, of Sarban, but we're used to the the Spanish one. Or am I thinking of a Pavan? I'm all confused now. Anyway, Sarban <laughs> is usually slow, though. Yeah, these two have uh, the second and fourth movement have the real pronounced dance rhythms to them. Right. Uh, and the strumming is, you know, rather intense. So they're kind of uh, invigorating uh, in contrast yeah. to the other movements. So I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, and they sound great too. They really they got that rich sound. I should the, say, you know, cello is one of my favorite instruments, uh, yeah. and it is my favorite of the string family. So I always really like a great cello tone, and mm -hmm. uh, this guy's cello tone is really awesome because it's uh, very warm and rich, but at right. the same time, it has that little burr of roughness on it. Uh, it's got like it, a matte quality to it. Yeah. Sort of. I think it's got strings. He's not using those like yeah. shiny aluminum or so like steel that, strings that they use. That little kind of rough fuzz yeah. on top of that tone that keeps right. it really interesting. And he, he's able to uh, bring that out when he wants a little edge in some places. So I found it a real alluring, attractive tone uh, on this cello. It's so rich, but yeah, a little rawness left on the the leading edge of it uh, very attractive and uh, draws you into it i remember in the 1980s when period recordings on period instruments really became a thing it was so it's such it was such an exciting sound mm -hmm. there was a lot of battles in music well we're really going to use these old instruments mm -hmm. but they sounded really unique and they had that roughness at the time i was listening to a lot of rock music and rock music was kind of raw and it had like kind of this rough on you know kind yeah. of like Un, you know, kind of quality to it, and uh, the period instruments approximated that sort of thing in an acoustic way. Right. You know, there, there was something kind of, you know, it didn't blend perfectly with the rest of the ensemble, and I found that really exciting, and I still mm. do really today. All right, let's go on to uh, the next uh, piece, which is a sonata in A minor, in A minor by Giovanni Bononcini, the older brother. Starts with an andante. The the Italians like to start slow here. They kind of, you know, mm. uh, cello and harpsichord here. And there's a basso continuo by the second cello. Slow tempo here and this rather earnest sounding movement. And this is a pretty long movement, actually, at three minutes and 37 seconds comparatively yeah. for the rest of the pieces. I mean, it's not like this 30-minute movement or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, the solo cello carries all the melodic interest here, and the uh, theorbo occasionally adds a few comments. Second movement, Allegro, uh, comes across as a high-stepping dance. This is one of your dancey melodies again. Accents are hit pretty hard at the opening, and there's a contrasting quieter section where we can hear the harpsichord clearly with the solo cello. Then the opening heavily accented section returns. Third movement and final movement, a minuetto, which kind of goes into a grazioso, or the middle part is a grazioso. Um, this is an unusually, it's an elegant minuet, which is really unusual way to end the piece. But in the Gallant style, we didn't have the classical style that Mozart and Haydn perfected yet. Um, they always had a faster and more kind of sort of earthy last movement. Um this had a this has an appealing lilt to it, especially when the opening three notes dissolve into a brief pause before the rest of the melody is played. Um, really lovely minuet theme. The grazioso section starting at around a minute and twenty seconds. I didn't really it's that's not an exact time, but uh, it's around there. Uh, there's not much of a break between sections, and it doesn't contrast much with the opening, and may be hard to pull out for new listeners to this kind of music. 
The transition is subtle. It features a busier harpsichord line, and the lilt has disappeared. So you can you can notice it, but it's subtle. And it, but it says lightly played is the opening. The cello lays off on its attack a bit to make the contrast noticeable, and the opening repeats at about uh, two minutes and fifty two seconds into the track, and you can tell when that happens is a brief pause before it begins. Okay, moving on to the next piece, tracks 12 through 15, Giovanni Bononcini again, the older brother, uh, Sinfonia per violoncello solo in D major. Okay, so this is like a bigger work. Um, the first movement is Largo Allegro Grave, so it's got contrasting moods, and uh, this made me think a little bit of C.P.E. Bach, who came much later than this. I don't think he was... He, he, I think he may have been alive at this time, but, uh, you know, when the Bononcinis were older. Um, this has, this is a mournful, slow opening, and it kind of clouds up and results um, at the 1 minute and 10 second mark into an aggressive bowing on the cello, which suddenly stops at a minute and 25 seconds. Um, the thing that made me think about C.P.E. Bach was um, mood is the most important element or the emotions. Mm. And that's what we're getting here. Um, different you know, contrasting emotions. Uh, the opening melody comes back sounding even more mournful. Second movement, Allegro, is kind of dancey. And the cello is busy with figuration in this movement, accompanied only by the harpsichord. The third movement, Adagio, starts with a breathy sound from the cello. And it's accompanied by quite a few actual breaths from the soloist. I think the <laughs> mic is really close here. No, that's not a bad thing, though. It's um, it's really it's enjoyable. Real. Yeah, it's real. The sound gets fuller as the section goes on. And this is a brief movement in a minute and five seconds. Harpsichord accompanies. Last movement, again, a minuet. This is a cheerful and surprisingly fast-paced minuet. They're usually around mid-tempo. Um, still, it has a r minuet rhythm. And it's only 57 seconds long and has only the first minuet section. It's not, it doesn't have a contrasting middle section. It's very short. It's a satisfying ending, fast enough. Okay, getting back to the younger brother, Antonio Maria Bononcini. Sonata da Camera in A major and uh, has a nickname La Comodina. This starts with a cantabile opening movement, track 16. And uh, the entire ensemble is playing at the beginning of this, the second cello playing lightly in the upper register, offering a discrete continual line. The cello line is a melodic winding melody, and this movement is fairly long at 4 minutes and 27 seconds, so there's a lot going on. There's a really odd-sounding transition at 2 minutes and 10 seconds to a new section with some odd leaps in the melody. Now, I'm not saying odd-sounding in the sense that uh, the the the, the the, the ensemble got it wrong. It's just the odd, um, the, it's just the leaps in the melody are a little, they really mm. catch your ear because it just sounds so against what we've heard so far. Uh, it's noticeable because of the mostly conjunct phrasing of the opening section. Conjunct meaning, meaning the notes have a curve to them and they sort of climb and fall with their, with neighboring notes as opposed to leaping to a higher register. Um, we swiftly get back to the more comfortable opening section. Uh, there are some lovely sounds from the theorbo and harpsichord as the movement winds down. Second movement, Allegro, is another high-stepping rhythm and leaping melodic figure from the solo cello with accented, meaning staccato in this case, because you can't, you can't really accent chords on the harpsichord. <laughs> you do it by making them short. 
and they stand out. In the middle section, an aggressively strummed theorbo enters. That was a pretty interesting sound, really. It mainly sticks to its strumming role with the harpsichord playing block chords. The dancing melodic theme continues to the end. Third movement, affettuoso, uh, is a brief movement to close the piece. It's very affettuoso. It comes across as like a tender, private, affectionate moment with sounds that caress the ear as one would caress a lover. Tracks 19 to 22, Antonio Maria Bononcini, the younger brother, Sonata 4. Uh, this, these four movements, this work was the highlight of this album for me. It's also, I think, the longest piece on the album, so it's got a lot of um, activity. And that activity is all interesting. Um, the organ, first of all, is in this, and part of what's interesting about it is the approach of the musicians. Uh, they make this ear-catching all the way through. They, they, the four of them just throw out all these kind of interesting sounds without um, getting in the way of the music. Um, and I really appreciate this because um, this an entire album of music like this could easily just get boring if it's just played straight. Mm-hmm. So, but they've obviously taken a lot of time to uh, pull out the uh, instrumentation and arrange it so that it's really interesting or perform it so it's really interesting. It's a fantastic performance all the way around. So the first Largo movement has the organ with the theorbo. I'm guessing that the harpsichord is playing playing the organ, as I said. Um, There's a pretty interesting arpeggio figure in the cello, followed by a double-stopped pitch-bending sound that's achieved by moving the fingers slightly up and down the strings. It's really odd. Um, I've never heard anything like that in music of this era. I'm wondering if that's in the score. It must be. Uh, it is by the more virtuosic of the brothers, so who knows? It could be. The opening material repeats and tension builds up at the end of the 3 minute and 12 second movement via a repeated stop on a chord of tension. So it keeps hitting this chord without cadencing. So you're building up all this tension and we get a full cadence at the end. Second movement is allegro, faster, with short phrases followed by the pauses in the solo cello line. Again, this is a surprising and creative movement. It's longish at uh, two minutes and fifty-three seconds, given you know the average um, uh, length of tracks on this album. I love the deep bass sound the organ pedal achieves. This is what makes this, uh, it's the performance here that makes this movement mm-hmm. great. There's real chest cavity stuff in that. If you have a subwoofer, make sure it's turned on for this. It'll feel good. <laughs> oh. The bass fills the whole room when the note is sounding. And I, it made me feel like I was under like this, I was in this swimming pool and I was in like submerged in bass water. It's like It's like, <laughs> it's like you put your, you, you get in this pool and all of a sudden your whole body's like, and then you get out and it stops. It was so awesome. I loved it. <laughs> it's like a pool filled with bass, if you could imagine such a thing. I can. Or I don't have to. I heard it. Okay, nice recording there. Uh, the cello has a lot of quick, repeated note figuration of requiring a sharp bowing technique, and the opening material returns at the end. Great recording on that movement. Uh, for those wanting to sample that, track 20. Moving on to track 21, movement three, Adagio. Starts with a ticking rhythm. I I always think of those like when you have four, four, and you have a a quarter note on each one, it kind of comes across as a ticking rhythm Mm. to me. You know, on each beat of that, um, dun, dun, 
dun, dun, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it stops when the cello plays uh, recitative-like material that morphs into quickly arpeggi- arpeggiated figuration. Again, very interesting um, approach. The ticking rhythm returns at 54 seconds or so. A very pleasing and inventive movement in a pleasing inventive sonata. Uh, the bass notes produced by the organ on the tonic chord of cadences are deeply satisfying. They, These cadences... Uh, totally resolved with that bass note it resonates richly and you'll notice them if you don't know what a cadence is um just listen for the bass notes here you'll hear them it's it's when we tonic tonic chords are kind of like the um or cadences are sort of like uh, the period at the end of a sentence in um in in writing so in music a cadence sounds like the end of a phrase or a section um, this is a fairly long movement of 5 minutes and 15 seconds, which is very long for this album. The movement seems to be structured like a set of variations, and you can hear that great bass pedal on the final cadence of the movement again. Fourth movement is Allegro, strongly accented chords in the opening theme, followed by some pretty quick cello figuration and very impressive playing here by the soloist Marco Cecato. He gets opportunities in this three-minute and eight-second movement to show off his bowing skills, which is mostly what uh, the virtuosity is on this album. The music goes back and forth between slower melodic material and faster bowed material. I don't think you get really rapid kind of runs on a cello from this era. I think the action was a little slower than uh, the, the modern cello. Anyway, we have one more work, again by Antonio Maria Bononcini. This is tracks 23 through 25. Uh, Sinfonia per camera in C minor. Starts with a cantabile movement. It's a slow, rather lamenting theme, dragged out of the solo cello and ensemble. Um, In the second section, the material lightens up a bit in its new key as it heads back to the tonic. There are some nice descending arpeggiated chords in the solo cello to end many phrases, and the harpsichord picks up on a few of them too and echoes them. Second movement, Spiritoso, one of those high-stepping dance rhythms in 6-8 time. Uh, Brief at 149, 1 minutes and 49 seconds. The cello soloist is active in this movement, playing most of the rapid thematic material, mostly bowed rapidly. The harpsichord dances along with him in accompaniment. The 6-8 is very easy to spot in this movement because they outline the triplets um, very Mm -hmm. clearly. Um, And the last movement is a minuetto, a very brief uh, minuet, um, a minute and 15 seconds to end the piece and the album. It doesn't sound very minuet-like at the speed it's played, but it's got all the repeating themes. The cello and harpsichord are fairly busy in this movement. So this album has gorgeous sound, excellent tasteful playing, and really excellent and very tasteful and very intriguing orchestration all around. Now the orchestration, when I say that, it's it's the way the ensemble um, organizes and performs the works. Um, this is a really unique and very appealing approach. Albums like this can become tedious because of the sameness of the material, but the ensemble varies its orchestration and interpretive approach enough that the ear is constantly drawn in and pleased. A really enjoyable album, and it went by fast. It's about an hour long. Uh, seemed shorter than that. I actually checked the time at the end. I was like, yeah, that seemed really short, and it was an hour. Um, Also, ideal listening for the early morning, if you're one of these people like me who likes uh, Baroque music in the morning, because it's usually pretty um, uh, upbeat and puts you in a good mood for the rest of the day. Yeah, I like this one a lot. 
as you say, this style, the Gallant, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to call it superficial, but it's not a very... Yeah, that's what critics say. That's not what really means. It's not a, okay. a very deep, uh, yeah. emotional sort of uh, pulling on the listener. Mm. Uh, but mm. it is very well-crafted and interesting, and yeah. uh, I found it's played here with a lot of zest and energy, especially in the rhythms, uh, the dance-like uh, inducing strumming of uh, the instruments, uh, the therobone and uh, the harpsichord, uh, staccato nature enlivens the rhythmic structure and the way they've got it arranged in the performance style. Uh, that's contrasted with that deep organ in spots, and uh, you've got a lot of creative uh, contrast of rhythm in the movements, and it moves along really quickly with these short movements, especially at the beginning. So you're getting a constant change of scenery. Uh, to keep you uh, entertained throughout. And if it's not, you know, extremely deep music, it is wonderfully uh, tonally rich. And the cello yeah. just sounds absolutely great. All the instruments are really clear on the recording. The balance is good. And the detail is maybe even too much. <laughs> I just said you can hear some breathing <laughs> noises or whatever, but it just gives you a, a lively air, like you're almost sitting next to them as they perform yeah. it. And uh, so I found it kind of energizing, like you say, in the morning, uh, anytime really, when yeah. you uh, want something uh, that's going to give you some rhythmic energy and just sound gorgeous. Uh, it's a good album. And anyone who likes cello, you're going to like this, I think. Yeah. And if you like the organ too, mm -hmm. well, I don't know about that. I really want a recording of like an organ pedal being pushed down for one hour. <laughs> I just love that sound so much. If I had an organ in my house, I think I would do that every day. I would just go to the organ, turn it on, just just hold that hold that hold that pedal down and be satisfied by by the sound it makes. Gets your chakras aligned from the base. I think up. I think it yeah. clears the chakras. I really <laughs> think it does something positive to your body. I just feel good when I hear it. Could very well do so. Because yeah, it certainly ch shakes up some things in there, that's for sure. All right, on to the uh, next piece. Um, this one is, um, I, I put this one second because it kind of starts in the Baroque era and then moves into the uh, classical, like up to the year 1799. It covers 50 years of music. Mandolin on stage, the greatest mandolin concertos well i don't know about that uh, they, they may very well be but i know that there is one vivaldi mandolin concerto that isn't on this that i really love but mm. <laughs> that's okay um this is played by uh, raffaele laragione who plays the period mandolins like they're all different mm -hmm. i think he plays like a, a mandolin a period mandolin to match the era that the piece was written in and this is um the ensemble is a Pretty uh, well-known Baroque ensemble these days, Il Pomo d'Oro. Now, this is a great name, by the way. Pomo means an apple, and d'Oro means gold, okay? So it means golden apple. But if you say mm -hmm. it fast, pomodoro, as one word, it means tomato. So it's kind of a little pun, <laughs> their hey, name. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Hey, it's a pomodoro. It's a you get pomodoro. it? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, shut up in your face. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Il Pomo d'Oro. They, they, they have it written as Golden Apple, Pomo d'Oro. Okay. Okay. Um, conducted by Francesco Corti, uh, harpsichord and conductor. And this is on the Italian Arcana label. I got to say, now, if you we, look at the cover of this and you see yeah. these kind of, I guess there's three different instruments on this album. But, yeah. you know, if you're 
image of the mandolin is, you know, the modern mandolin, <laughs> which I think is actually like a tenor mandolin or something. Yeah. Now, that's hard enough to play. Uh, being a guitarist as well and having tried to play mandolin a few times, it's, <laughs> it yeah. seems like it's made for someone with... tiny... Yeah, really, really small fingers. Now, if you look at the cover of this album and look at this tiny little mandolin, uh, I really wonder (laughs) how you could play this thing. Uh, I don't know if that's the smallest one on here. Uh, It doesn't look like it has much range. Look, there are five or six frets on the entire instrument. Uh, The tone varies a a bit, but the the smallest one uh, that I hear on here is a very plinky sound, but I can just imagine... (laughs) trying to get your fingertips on that little fretboard there but, uh, oh it's god you, you can't you can't if you're if you're born with those sausagey fingers yeah. you just this is not an instrument yeah. for you sausage <laughs> fingers yeah yeah you gotta you gotta play something else any anyway yeah the the mandolin doesn't have much sustain at all so it's really just the uh, the attack that you're hearing and it's like the sound is just instantly gone which is why this is an instrument that um lends itself to really fast virtuosic playing um Although not always, there there is one beautiful um, Vivaldi movement, Largo movement for mandolin that we don't hear on this album. That's really lovely. Anyway, we start out with a work by Antonio Vivaldi himself, Mandolin Concerto in C Major. Everybody knows Vivaldi, composer of the Four Seasons. Well, guess what? He wrote Mandolin Concertos too, and they're really beautiful. And two of them are really famous, and this is one of them. Um, the opening Allegro is um, a this is the the famous movement in this work. Um, um, I'm not too. Sh- I'm wondering about the recording. Although this, my ear adjusted to this pretty readily. The low end comes up well. There's a lot of room reverb. Um, everything came up clearly though, so there's no problem with the recording. I think I just would have liked the drier sound. But I noticed maybe that's just me. Differences mm-hmm. on the so you've yeah. got the ensemble pieces like the next work. Uh, right. I noticed a completely different. Um, recording sort of, uh, I don't want to yeah, say the, quality, but sound sound quality and, and the resonance, everything is different. So uh, it may be in different rooms or everything was re-miked uh, for certain pieces here. Right. I guess depending on the solo instrument, mm-hmm. they wanted to decide how to pick it up. How to, anyway, uh, everything comes out clearly though. You hear all the orchestral detail on this. Um, I like the rather high speed and lyrical playing of the orchestra accompanying this work. Um, the mandolin's part is mostly repeated note figuration. So there's a lot of repeated notes. It's, so it's strumming. It's plucking, really. That's the uh, that we're listening to here, his, his technique. Uh, I, I'm finding a lot of interest in the orchestra in this particular movement. Um, the mandolin part is virtuosic and well played. It seems a consistent ringing tone is not something the mandolin is built for. It sounds muted a lot in this um, movement um, due to the narrow spaces between frets. Uh, Impressive and enjoyable. And this is actually a really famous movement. If you turn it on, you might recognize it from some TV ad you've seen somewhere because it's used for those sorts of things quite often. Yeah, you can't get the royalties anymore. Yeah, too bad, huh? Somebody's somebody's getting away with something there. (laughs) Okay, second movement, Largo, and I love the whole sound world in this movement. The mandolin playing its repeated note melody, the lower strings in the ensemble plucking a pizzicato chord at each downbeat, really pretty. There's a guitar accompanying at about uh, 45 seconds, 
And again, a lovely realization of the entire ensemble on the recording and sensitive playing by the orchestra themselves as well as the mandolin soloist. Yeah, he's got a nice real movement. finesse in the way that he plays, even without sustain. It's like, yeah. it's an imagined sustain and yeah. the sort of phrasing and flair that he uses on that impressed me a lot. Uh, yeah. Even if you're really limited with the tone you can produce on that tiny instrument, he plays it like it's a much bigger uh you know, instrument that he's throwing out with confidence, uh, these lines. So it's, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, fun and impressive kind of, uh, performance style. I thought. Yeah. I like what, the way you described it as imagined, um, kind of resonance or imagined, mm. um, continuation. Yeah. You hear the note, it completely dies, but in your head, it's still sounding, you know, it's, right. um, our imagination, yeah. uh, actually has a lot to do with, um, the way we hear music. All right. It's an interesting study in itself. There's a famous bit, by the way, in, um, there, there was a, a, I think it was, uh, the last, uh, piano sonata by Beethoven where he, um, he has you holding a note in the very high end of the piano for longer than I can possibly sound because the sustain isn't going to be very long up there. And you're wondering why you're holding this note down. Well, it's the imagined sound, really. Yeah, I mean, right. you're, yeah, it's it's it has to do with that. You actually do hear it like that. So you want to do something to make the listener feel mm. like he's hearing it for that long. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of this in music. Schumann did it a lot too. The third movement, Allegro, has a lovely sound from the mandolin uh, as he plays double-stopped chords. I guess if you can call them double-stopped chords on the mandolin, that's a term usually used <laughs> for the violin. Um, they're really chords. Like on a guitar, they'd be chords or yeah. riffs or something. Double-stopped chords at the opening. There's more soloistic material after this and lovely variation of the textures by the ensemble as the phrases repeat. They keep all the repeats interesting. The ear is always engaged in this fairly brief movement. So like the cello um, album, this one starts out with a lot of really inventive um, uh, playing on the repeated material to make it continuously interesting. Okay, the next now the way this um, album is structured is um, there there will be a mandolin concerto and then there'll be some orchestral work to kind of separate the mandolin concerto concertos and the first um, symphonic work we get here is Baldassare Galuppi who we did a whole um, um, album of yeah we did last that. year yeah um, this is Symphonia in G Major from Il Mondo alla Roversa ossia le donne che comandano ossia il regno delle donne so it has three different titles. The Osia means like or. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, thank you. I like these. We should we should name movies like that. Uh, you know, alternative um, title. Yeah, Star Wars or you know, Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader's demise or something. You know, this is giving. He's telling you the whole story in the title. I don't know. Couldn't decide. Um, anyway, this particular this was kind of the low point of the album for me. Um, and I think it's the ensembles doing here. The, in the Allegro section, the mandolin... Okay, the mandolin doesn't appear in this piece. Um, it's a brief first movement with a full-sounding ensemble. Uh, not too interesting timbrely here. And to me, I feel like the ensemble could have done more to make this interesting. It sounds like a typical classical ensemble. There's a repeating swooping string melody in the middle section, then back to the more robust opening, which doesn't really get any kind of 
nuance to it. I mean, they just kind of repeat it. Uh, and that's not the case with any of the other works on this album. They really go out of their way to to make this all this music interesting. This kind of sounds... Okay, let me get through the rest of this particular piece. The second movement on Dante. Um, uh, it's another really brief movement at a minute and 29 seconds. The ensemble plays the melodies beautifully, but I feel don't go all the way to make this music interesting. Um, it's not terribly interesting music, but you can draw certain things out of it. Um, the repeats are taken in much the same way as the first time we hear them. And the tempo di minuetto, the third and final movement, is very brief at a minute and five seconds. Sounds like a hornpipe melody that you hear in like um, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto or Handel's Water Music. A lively piece. Yeah, it's okay. Mm. But I feel like here, it kind of, this the inclusion of this on the album sounds kind of like an afterthought. I really feel like the ensemble could have done more to bring this to life although they do play beautifully mm-hmm. I, you know i'm kind of putting it down but they they do play beautifully the melodies beautifully i just feel like they needed to do more on the repeats my opinion anyway not to worry because next we get uh, giovanni paesiello uh, mandolin concerto and e-flat major okay this is attributed to giovanni paesiello we actually don't know who wrote it first movement allegro maestoso uh, dotted rhythms in the mandolin's opening theme start us off. So dotted rhythms, dun 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 dun. Okay, it's a, it just makes the longer note, the first note longer, and the second note is very brief. Uh, this is more firmly structured than the briefer Vivaldi. We're getting sort of into the classical era here, and noticed- all the material, yeah. I'm more of a shimmer in the sound of the mandolin here, so I wondered if this is a different instrument than the It has to be, yeah. 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 Uh, All the material in this piece is interesting, too. Um, Very. Now, I was just kind of complaining about the uh, galuppi, but this is a complete about-face. This sounds fantastic. Um, The mandolin chimes out its melodies like bells. Um, I love the way the accompaniment is realized. It's very present, and they have an appealing way of shaping the melodic material. Uh, listen after a minute and 30 seconds to the cellos. There's a pause at around 3 minutes and 42 seconds that makes it seem the movement is over, but the mandolin comes in solo with the same energy he's been soloing with, and the orchestra dutifully comes in and lightly accompanies. Nice movement and a nice discovery, um, this movement and really this piece. Uh, I, I want to mention again, listen after a minute and 30 seconds uh, to the cellos for the uh, the shaping of the melodic material. It's really nice. Okay, second movement. By the way, that's tracks, that was track seven, in case you want to sample that. Um, track eight, second movement, Larghetto Grazioso. Starts with a string theme. Uh, the harpsichord acts as continuo here. And this one broods a bit in its minor key. The mandolin comes in with a theme. There's a lovely turn of phrase by the orchestra. Orchestra. I'm going way too fast here. I'm just too excited. This is so good. (laughs) To start a new melody in the mandolin just after a minute. It's a movement full of lovely turns of phrase. And whoever composed it uh, knew a thing or two about grabbing an audience's attention. Uh, Lovely, quietly muted phrase after around 4 minutes and 15 seconds. Check that out. Uh, the mandolin gets a cadenza just after the 4 minutes and 45 second point, and he takes it to sound a bit like a recitative in an opera, which would have been a very common thing to do. Uh, opera was very popular in this era. Um, 
though musical turns and repeated notes emerge soon afterwards. The ensemble comes back and brings the movement to a closing cadence. Third movement, Allegro, track nine. This has a broad 3-4 or 6-8 feel to it. Um, it feels like 3-4 to me, but it could very well be a slow 6-8. It sounds like a broad type of dance. The rhythm is lively and high-stepping. The mandolin solos appealingly the mandolin solos appealingly after the opening material. I enjoyed the impressively virtuosic trills after a minute and 45 seconds into this track, nine. This seems to be a rondo form. We keep hearing the opening material, and the work comes to a close at the 4 minute and 51 second mark. This is a highly appealing work. Make sure you give it a listen. It's not so famous, although it says it is. I don't know. It was new for me. Track 10. This one actually is by Giovanni Paisiello. Uh, Sinfonia, Sinfonia, sorry, in B-flat major from La Serva Padrona. Um, this was an opera written, well, there may have been different versions of it. Um, there was an opera written by Pergolesi called La Serva Padrona. I think this is a different opera, though. Just that same story with different music, which often happened in the operatic world. Okay, this is another non-mandolin work to cleanse our palate after the last, um, our ear palate, if your palate, cleanse our ear canal, let's say, after the last um, move, the last concerto. Uh, this one features a classical sounding ensemble who start with rushing orchestral strings, orchestral strings. Hmm. This work seems to move somewhat like a concerto grosso from the Baroque era as far as its form goes. Uh, different parts of the opening theme come in to separate the material. This is well played. I liked this one. In fact, everything mm -hmm. on this album is well played, including the galoopy, but the galoopy needed a little more, I felt like. Anyway. Tracks 11 to 13, we get to Francesco Lecce's Mandolin Concerto in G Major. Yeah, I really like this one. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It says famous mandolin concertos, and I haven't heard this one either. <laughs> well, this was the first time yeah. I ever heard this one. Maybe they're famous among mandolin players. Relatively, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this one has a flowery opening with the mandolin and I say the uh, let me see the orchestra are playing together. I like the sound of the mandolin during its first solo. Uh, it's provided with a violin bed. Uh, the mandolin's sharp attack contrasts well with the disguised, inaudible attack of the strings. So you just the strings just kind of mm. come in, and then you keep hearing this the attack on the mandolin. It's just a great contrast. Uh, there's virtuosic speed on the solo. It breathes well, but is fast. And that's a key to keep in mind uh, how the mandolin soloist, despite the fast speeds he's playing at, always gives his phrases room to breathe, the mark of a great virtuoso. It's very musical playing, and uh, that's what we love about Italian musicians in general. We're going to hear some of that in the jazz oh, yeah. um, section, too. They're very that's musical. It's the same thing in, in jazz, too, where you're improvising yeah. on the spot. Mm. The mark of a great in improviser is he leaves enough space for you yeah. to think about what you just heard before launching into the next melodic you know, development of that. And uh, yeah, so I think both in composition and improvisation, those kind of qualities of maturity and uh, refinement of composition, there kind of a lot of overlap in what is, uh, you know, a really nice style uh, here. Right. And 
uh, I found that a lot in this in this piece. I thought this was a, a really nice composition. Yeah, I thought so too. By the way, speaking of uh, space, there's a TV show in Japan. I don't even know the name of it, but it, it airs every New Year's Day evening. It's like a once a year thing, and it's sort of like a quiz show where these celebrities sort of have to answer these rather culturally uh, high level questions. Which <laughs> you, know, you can never imagine something like this happening in the U.S. But um, <laughs> but one of the things they have to do is um, there are two orchestras that play, and they have to guess which one is the professional orchestra and which one is the student orchestra. Now, needless to say, the student orchestra plays exceptionally well, right? But uh, I can always tell the difference between and the the secret to knowing the difference is what you just said. The um, the music breathes more. I mean, it's, the student orchestra plays virtuosically, but they play slightly more mechanically. Yeah, there's a more too like tight, a, a yeah. yeah, but it's not really that noticeable. But if you've been listening to it a lot, you mm-hmm. you you can spot it right away. The uh, professional orchestra leaves like more. It bends the. Uh, tempo very slightly just to right. kind of get certain things to register and um it lives my yeah my japanese friends were always really amazed at how i guess this every year well if they <laughs> saw your cd collection that would be you know right you would be like the art authenticator <laughs> who had the museum yeah. of rep of you know artifacts to compare it to um, it's all there the, on, on that same show the next uh the next question they ask is they they show you two bonsai trees and you have to guess which one was um made by the uh, great artist and which one's an amateur one oh. and i have no criteria for this no. i have no idea what to no. look we're going to lose on that one yeah. i just have to i just have to leave that to my japanese friends yeah, yeah. All right, i look at them and i'm like i have no idea they both you know one, and actually one of them looks like more ornate than the other one always but you don't know mm-hmm. that's that's not what the quality right. they're looking for is i don't know what it is Okay, the second movement, we're still on the, uh, by the way, the Francesco Lecce, Mandolin Concerto in G Major. This is the second movement. We're already knocked out by the first movement. So the second movement, uh, Largo, which is track 12, has a lilting, rather haunting melody spelled out by strings with a plucked instrument acting as continuo. I'm guessing it's a Theorbo, so we're back to that from the previous album. I like the spare strings that accompany the mandolin's turn at the melody. When the strings take over after about the two-minute mark, they're accompanied by the deep sound of the thrumming theorbo. It's a new sound on the recording, and the variety just keeps the ear engaged. Uh, Something a little more intimate from the mandolin follows after two minutes and 30 seconds. Beautiful movement. Check that out. The third movement, track 13, Allegro Balletto. This movement comes across as fairly aggressive in its dance quality. Um, it's very, you know, ballo is a dance in Italian, so balletto would be like a, a nice, a lovely dance, I guess. Um, it, but it, this sounds aggressive. It's very bold and masculine sounding. There are a lot of brief pauses or retards in between melodic phrases. Uh, there's an odd hitting of wood sound that I heard twice in this movement, and I'm wondering if it's part of the score or if it's just someone dropping something on the wooden floor. Did you <laughs> notice this? No, I didn't notice that, no. Okay. I was listening to it through speakers, though, so it could okay. have even been something in my house. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it could be. But I, I'm pretty sure it came from the speakers. I should have put the headphones on for this. Uh, I guess uh, I guess the latter. I, th- I think it was somebody um, dropping something. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. which happens. You hear squeaky chairs and stuff yeah. on recordings. Yeah, it can happen. Classical recordings sometimes or things like that. I, uh, no worries, though. It doesn't distract from the performance and, in fact, seems to belong to it. Uh, there's a cool final-sounding cadence about a minute from the end, but the music comes back and goes on. The mandolin gets one more chance to show his virtuosic chops before the final cadence material lands, and he does a lovely repeated note fade with his phrase ends on a retard. Really beautiful. Retard is a slowing down in Italian. Nice work. Yeah, give that a listen. All right, we get our um, our next, uh, our final um, sort of, you know, separating piece here. This is by uh, Franz Josef Haydn, the, the famous Haydn. Symphonia in D major, La Pescatrici, um, which means the fishermen, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Pescatore would be a fisherman. <laughs> it's fish something. I don't know. Pescatrice. Ah, oh, fisherwomen? I don't know. Anyway. Fishmongers. I don't know. Whatever. May, may, it could be the fishmongers. That could be right. Okay, allegro movement. This is a you can hear the cleaner classical lines in this piece. We're really evolving into the classical movement, and the ensemble sounds like they've adapted by including more players. There are hunting horns in this, and there are also pastoral elements like pedal basses. Uh, a pedal bass is when the bass imitates the organ bass that I love so much. It just hammers down one note, and there's a lot of other material on top of that. The melodic material is all appealing, as we'd expect from Haydn, a nicely paced performance of great musicality. And the final work on this album, uh, tracks 15 to 17, is by Johann Nepomuk Hummel, uh, Mandolin Concerto in G Major. Hummel was a contemporary of uh, Beethoven. In fact, I think he was one of Beethoven's um, students. And he was expected by, uh, I think he even knew Mozart too. But I'm not sure about that. Anyway, he was expected to be the next great Beethoven, but I guess that didn't happen. He did write a lot of highly appealing music, though, because he, yeah. he was considered one of the great um, musicians of his day, certainly. And yeah, he and showed a lot of, of promise as a composer, too. The few uh, trumpet concertos that uh, is in the yeah. repertoire. You know, there's not a lot of uh, trumpet works, you know. It's, right. uh, uh, but his is one of the ones that uh, every trumpet By the player way, learns to play, yeah. Right, there's a great album of some of his piano works by uh, Stephen Huff that came out Ooh. like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, really worth uh, looking for. You're not going to find it. It's on Hyperion Records, of course, so you're not going to find it on your streaming services. Mm-hmm. But if you can get a hold of it, uh, that's well worth hearing. All right, so his mandolin concerto in G major. Indeed, a, a composer known for his trumpet concerti. First movement, Allegro Moderato e Grazioso. Mm, highly appealing thematic material here, and uh, fairly involved, too. This is the most sophisticated mm. uh, and compl- complexly organized piece on this album. Yeah. And that's not to say it's hard to follow. Don't let that uh, keep you away from it. It's actually a, a good massage for your brain. Um, some, some part of your brain will understand what's going on. It's very appealing. Hummel keeps the mandolin out of the piece until it finally enters with the thematic material at a minute and 30 seconds. So this is a real classical mm-hmm. um, work. He, he really gives it a dramatic opening. La Ragione, the um, mandolin soloist, really takes his time to make the melody breathe. He's, he's a great player. Um, yeah, what he does on this in the phrasing is great because he, um, 
and it's a lot of like scale scalar lines in this going up and down right. but his phrasing yeah. is not mechanical at all it's really flowing accents and just slight hesitations i mean they're, they're ever so slight to give that natural sort of uh stretching of the time or speeding up without deviating from the tempo so that it actually feels like it's breathing and alive uh, as the musical lines right. come through it's a really um you know high level of musicianship to to play with this kind of nuance uh, i enjoyed that a lot right there's a lot of space around every note this mm -hmm. is deeply satisfying to hear um yeah if you're a if you're a music student you might want to give this album a listen because this is what a, a great soloist does basically yeah, um, or good. a very musical player does. Um, it's a longish sonata form movement, almost eight minutes, but the material is satisfying and appealing, and the soloist does a lot to draw that appeal out. Excellent pacing by the ensemble as well. Il Pomodoro are very well known at this point, so they've played a lot of this music. Second movement, Andante con Variazioni, the theme... So we're going to have variations here. The theme is a charming melody with a mechanical type of ticking rhythm, uh, the sort of cute theme often used in variation movements. Uh, the first variation is more flowing. The second features quick dotted rhythms. There's a variation that features only an ensemble without the mandolin, surprisingly. And afterwards, the mandolin plays a constant figuration in which he pulls the melodic notes out of the texture. Very nice. Ends on a nice upward figure. And the third movement, Rondo very popular form from the day has a pretty flowery theme with a broad 3-4 rhythm and horns involved in the cadence that ends it again this might be a 6-8 theme when there are horns it's usually a hunting theme in this era the first departure features brief phrases then elaborated on uh, the rondo theme is played on the mandolin more gently than in the opening when it returns this is what I wanted to hear in the galoopy something like this mm. where he he takes the repeating theme in a different way than he played it the first time uh, then the whole orchestra joins to restate it we go to a departure in the minor key then come back to the sunny major rondo theme for the ending how great was all of this? I enjoyed yeah. this immensely, too. This is a good week for me, really, as far yeah. as music goes. It wasn't a good week in any other way. <laughs> this was a nice one to finish on because it sort of hints at the future. This is more like a real classical concerto with the differentiation yeah. between the ensemble and the soloist, you know, like we're used to hearing in other, in other works. Uh, so it's sort of the culmination of this little kind of historical journey too. Well, not, it's all really good. It's, it's really a 50 year journey. Yeah. 1750 around Vivaldi too. Yeah. You can see the, the evolution of the compositional style. Uh, right. Also the different, you know, it's subtle, but if you listen really carefully, you'll hear the differences in, in the mandolins that he uses and the tonal quality is different. Hence his approach and what he, you know, the way he phrases things is different on the different instruments. Uh, I thought it's quite impressive the musicality he gets out of this instrument with no sustain, uh, right. really. Uh, he can do a lot with it. And uh, the mandolin-centered pieces, uh, the recording quality is excellent. There's a little yeah. variation in the in the ensemble interludes. It's not, it's not overwhelming yeah. or anything. Uh, it, everything is well played, but uh, yeah, outstanding... Uh, musicianship and uh, stylizations of these um, mandolin playing things uh, really added another kind of dimension in my mind to 
in the musicality of a mandolin. Right. For me personally, so many of the elements I love most about Italian music from this era appear on this recording. Um, the entire album's appealing. It's played and programmed with enough variety so it's highly enjoyable to listen to straight through. Highly, highly recommend it, everybody. Give that a listen. Yeah, another good one to charge up your morning. Get that caffeine. Get your espresso. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those eyes opened up with all the rhythms and uh, really sharp attacks on this uh, album will get you ready for your work day. So. Yeah, that is a... That is a... My recommendation, I've been doing this for years now, just starting the day with Baroque music. I recommend, listener, that you do the same. All right. Our last classical album is um, a 20th century composer, Sandro Fuga, who I didn't know much about. I had actually heard a cello sonata by him that was on a, a Naxos recording with two other composers. And I don't want to say who they are because I can't. I might get one of them wrong. But um, so I knew that piece and it was really appealing. It was, it was very melodic, uh, well put together. And so I was curious to hear this. Um, Piano Sonatas 1 through 3 by Sandro Fuga. And these works are played by two of his children, uh, Giacomo Fuga and his sister Carlotta Fuga. That's Giacomo's sister, Sandro's daughter. And a third pianist, Claudio Voghera. Um, each of them plays one of the uh, sonatas. Mm. Okay, so a little bit about Sandro Fuga. Who was he? Um, his mother was a member of the Nono family, who uh, the great composer Luigi Nono came from that family, the great 20th century Italian composer. Uh, so there's a connection there. And uh, the Nono family were pretty artistic. Uh, uh, Luigi Nono's uncle Urbano was a sculptor, and his grandfather Luigi was an artist. So... Um, a family I would have liked to have been born into, let's just say. <laughs> yeah. um, he, Sandro Fugo was born in the Veneto, which is where uh, Venice and Verona are. A lot of Vs there. They like that letter, I guess. Mm. I don't know. But Fuga, um, he became associated with the city of Turin, in which is in the Piedmont region, where he became a professor of piano and later of composition at what would become the Turin Conservatory. And he later became director of the conservatory. So he's like a major player uh, in that city, especially. And really in Italian music in the 20th century. Fuga, his music really didn't get out of Italy until now we're getting these recordings and starting to hear them. Uh, Fuga wrote a lot of piano music, um, but the booklet notes for the CD claim that these three sonatas represent the summit of that music. Uh, Fugo was critical of the avant-garde in vogue in Italy while he was alive. So he, but he wasn't, well, he wasn't really a conservative. He was a very modern composer, but he was more like, well, he, he was um, looking towards other music that had yeah. come from the immediate past, let's say. My impression uh, is that, um, yeah, he doesn't, you know, use any of these, uh, you know, things that were going on at the time when he was composing that you right. hear in other works. But he freely draws from all things that had come before. And that's kind of interesting. It, it makes his music kind of unpredictable, particularly in some of it. The harmonic movements are interesting and un, lots of unexpected things. But right. he uses a lot of uh, rhythmic elements that make the listener comfortable. 
So you'll be able to follow, you know, the sort of cadence of the music. Right. Uh, and he'll he'll make it sufficiently rhythmic so that you can see the structure. And the structure and the development is uh, not unstandard at all. And hmm. uh, so I, I noticed that. And uh, when you say the music that had immediately come before, I noticed like in this first piece, it it draws on some impressionistic kind of French right. qualities in it. And what he also does nicely is he, he uh, alternates in the movements sort of what he's going at. So in this first piece, the I found the the first and third movements are more of a sort of angstful uh, or rather unsettling type of searching movements. And they're alternated with more placid sort of uh, almost pretty. His music can be very pretty at times, I found. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he gives a nice balance of that tension and release in the structure of his music too. So I found it very relatable for, you know, 20, 20th century music. Yeah, ways. this was um. All right, well, first of all, let me just mention this was on the uh, Naxos label. Mm. Um, so, for, so give them a shout out because it was my well, first anyway, my about, first listening to him. So yeah, yeah, I, I had only heard one piece by him before, and I was suitably impressed by it. I mean, I, I thought it was really appealing. Um, these two, but I think these took a little more work than that cello sonata did. You should hear the cello sonata. I mean, you like the cello so much. Yeah, I mean, it would be I'm, a work. I'm interested to check it out. You'll have to hear. Um, just type it in on Naxos it'll come up I'm sure on Deezer um, so the first work is uh, Piano Sonata number no. 1 um, composed in 1957 and this is played by Giacomo Fuga his uh, older son uh, the older of the two piano playing I think he had more than two children but I'm not sure anyway this is in um, three no four movements and the first movement is Moderato and goes to Tormentoso <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see that marking, I'm like, oh man, here we go. But actually, it's not so uh, not so unappealing, let's say. Um, okay, now Fuga, by the way, I've heard his playing before because he played the piano on the cello sonata that I heard mm -hmm. from around 2014 that came out. The, the recording came out. Um, this starts as a tormented whirlpool of notes in the lower end of the piano. It's tonal. But it's a rather disturbed tonal. <laughs> it moves around uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a Charybdis, you know, the whirlpool in uh, the Odys in Odyssey in uh, the Odyssey. Uh, the the this whirlpool of notes uh, reaches a crescendo in ringing repeated notes in the higher register, uh, then quickly descends back to the low register and goes beyond that to some very low bass notes. Mm -hmm. One thing I notice about this composer, and this is going to be true of all three works is that he really does like to climb towards like a higher mm -hmm. register as though there's a big effort being made and then just fall back into the uh, the lower register. And he spends a lot of time in the lower register of the piano in all of these works, really. Um, after that happens, by the way, the, um, the low bass notes, the material becomes a bit more uh, ruminative with quick short figures followed by a pedal bass note. These figures become more ornate, gradually like they're kind of growing leaves or something and uh so or there's an organic quality to it but they maintain the quickness and shortness throughout the section the section dissipates and that's actually a word i want to use a lot for fuga's music too um sections they don't end they just sort of dissipate they just sort of fade away yeah. and then a new idea will start so that's part of his style 
And there's an upward uh, staccato theme emerges from that. It gets passed around to different registers and winds up in the bass as the right hand plays repeating notes in the rhythm. And we're about 5 minutes and 30 seconds into the movement at this point. The bass suddenly erupts forte at 5 minutes and 50 seconds or so. And we get some louder agitated music. This reaches a climax with ringing repeated high notes at the 7 minute mark. And repeated notes is certainly a key thematic element of this movement. We hear them a lot in the 7th and 8th minutes of the movement. They're emphatically played here in the 7th minute. They suddenly quieten, quiet down at the uh, 8 minutes and 30 second mark, and a short figure has sprouted from the repeated notes in the right hand. That organic quality, again, of something growing. Uh, while the bass keeps hammering on a pedal point note, the music heads towards a final climax in the ninth minute and reaches a deep zither-like strum at the end. That's done on the key uh, with the <clears throat> keys, by the way. Um, the whole movement is abstract, but clearly agitated and or disturbed. Second movement, Andante, has a slower and more pleasant melody, but it's more rocky than cur curvaceous in profile. The opening wind winds down to something new at about a minute and 35 seconds or so, and the last curving resolve repeats as part of the material for a new theme. It's a bit lighter in texture and quieter and more ethereal in tone than the opening. Uh, there's um, some pretty ornamentation in the melody. The first time I've been able to say that in this piece. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, yeah. This section, it kind of, you really, it's it's a bit intellectual at the beginning. This section goes uh, directly into closing material, starting just before the fourth minute and leading to a resolve at the end. The third movement, Allegro Moderato, has a buildup of tension, um, with half phrases left hanging at the end, only to repeat and try to go farther. It's like there's there's a trying to start a motor on a motorboat quality to the opening rhythm, like and it won't start. It just kind of tries, and then finally it takes. It builds to something more complete, finally, and then falls back to its original sort of opening profile. At a minute and 30 seconds, an insistent ostinato bass starts, so this would be where the motorboat really catches and starts uh, moving. And the upper hand plays rapid scale figures. The music gets more agitated as it heads upward in range, and the ending has some rocking bell-like tones, like rocking back and forth, which then descends down the keyboard to the bass range. There's a quick rush up the keyboard and then quickly down again to end the movement. Fourth movement is moderato e calmo, and then ends molto agitato, <laughs> agitated. <laughs> we know it's coming. Uh, well, not really, but I mean, we know what mood's coming. Uh, this is a questioning, quietly earnest melody starting the piece. There's not this. Sandro Fugo was, doesn't seem to have been a rather a humorous guy. This is all pretty serious <laughs> music, actually. Um, it's got pretty harmony though. He's he's um, he's got good taste. Let's say um, this bit is touching. It's very different in profile to what we've heard in the last three movements, and this has a gentle quality to it. But it must have been a lovely memory because the more agitated trembling in the <laughs> bass end of the piano reemerges to connect this movement to the first movement's darkness. A chordal section comes after this with the chords gently played. After that, the agitated music reemerges. It gains some melodic momentum, then quietens down in its bass range. There's some silence, and then sets of high bell-like chords quietly ring out at around 6 minutes and 45 seconds and after. 
Um, this suddenly ends, and at 7 minutes and 45 seconds, the agitated material returns, but never regains momentum. It quickly quietens down into resolving patterns and reaches a satisfying, quiet conclusion. This is a pretty interesting and intellectually satisfying piece, too, mm. and it achieves a nice balance by the end. I think this is my favorite one of the three, actually. I think it might be the best played, too, although yeah. they're all well played. I can't really mm -hmm. say. Maybe, but maybe it's the piece. Maybe he just kind of got the... I, I guess I like here... This, this is where I mentioned... I felt the second and at least part of the beginning of the fourth movement have that impressionistic quality mm -hmm. to them where he, he focuses a lot on uh, rhythm and these, like you said, the heavy bass lines and these sort of working phrases that work up but then hang off. And I, I felt that he shifts his emphasis to uh, focusing on the sort of uh, tonal qualities, uh, leaving a lot more space in the second movement and in the beginning of the fourth. And I thought that gave Sonata Number 1 uh, more kind of uh, contrasting qualities and some actual beauty in the pieces compared to the other two. Yeah. This is, well, let's move on to the second one. Mm. This is uh, Piano Sonata Number 2. Uh, these aren't giving keys, by the way. They're just called piano sonata number two. <laughs> it keeps two. changing all the time. So. Yeah, yeah. So there's no real, you know, key that can be said to be in. This one was composed in 1976, and the uh, soloist here is Carlotta Fuga, his uh, daughter, younger than Giovanni, you know, who who played the first piece. Um, it starts moderato and starts with chiming chords appealing but with a bit of darkness in them that becomes more ominous as the theme goes on <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of darkness in this guy's piano music i didn't hear so much of it in the cello sonata yeah, though but in, in this one it's interesting in the end of this movement it almost gets like a pop quality to it uh i thought it was an interesting transformation i call that sunnier yeah it gets yeah. sunny all of a sudden yeah this this dark quality creeps into the bass after the chords there seems to be a variation on the thematic material this time with broken up chord patterns from which a melodic figuration develops uh, the figuration speeds up in the next variation introduced by descending by a descending scale and triplets the triplet figuration then takes over the thematic material i do like the organicness of this music like once you hear that triplet mm -hmm. scale the triplets become the rhythm and it, he'll like generate new things out of these right. um out of this material that's that he's introduced earlier and it's really nice uh broken chords and eighth notes follow then a rather stormy less harmonically defined section after three minutes uh, this ends up by pounding on a single chord after the three minute and 45 second mark without any kind of resolve the music descends to the lower register he, he spends a lot of time there as i said hmm. And a rather aggressive uh, pouty march theme is heard at about 4 minutes and 30 seconds. The march dissipates. There's that again. It just kind of breaks up and fades away like uh, a fog that suddenly mm. <laughs> it's, it stops uh, into something thinner. And then uh, they're descending chords over an ostinato bass at around 5 minutes and 30 seconds to 6 minutes and 10 seconds. A new approach starts after a brief pause. It's in the piano's mid-range and sounds a bit sunnier. This is the pop music part that you talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, like the beginning of a new day after a rough night. <laughs> I kind of got that <laughs> feeling from it. It eventually ends calmly on a full cadence. 
the second movement um, in this um, three movement work um, is grave. So this is the middle movement. Starts with a downward ostinato bass and a few dissonant harmonies in the right hand chords. The bass has a ticking rhythm. Again, it's marking time um, as it descends and repeats. A crescendo starts and reaches its peak with some emphatic chords, then gives up its trajectory and sinks down again. The ostinato rhythm never stops. Another crescendo begins, ending with more emphatic chords that don't resolve harmonic tension. The music suddenly gets quiet again, pauses for a moment, resumes around 2 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, there's suddenly some brightness at around the 3 minute and 10 second mark when the harmonic profile of the piece suddenly changes. It stays here for a while, but in a brief crescendo manages to find darkness again. and just can't get free of that. The ostinato bass line returns at around 4 minutes and 45 seconds, and we're back to the dark feeling of the opening. There's a brief return to the bright material at 5 minutes and 15 seconds, but the music sinks down into funereal tolling bass notes. Third movement, Allegro Vivo e Preciso. Allegro Vivo is always a nice thing to see. This has an excitable bass line to open the piece. It sounds like an engine revving up for a perpetuum mobile <laughs> movement, but we don't get yeah. that. We just get something busy in the bass with clear thematic material over it. The music gains an excitement in the first movement, uh, the first section, I should say, as it as uh, it briefly crescendos to its high end. Uh, Carlotta Fuga, the soloist, does a lot to keep the voices clear, um, but I thought the performance in this movement could have used a bit less caution. Uh, it comes across well, though. I can't say anything negative about the playing. I just felt like there was kind of like an excitement mm built into the score that wasn't completely released. Um, there's a climb to the high end of the keyboard after 2 minutes and 40 seconds and a bit of a, a climax there as we land on some appealing figuration in the upper range. After this, the music seems to brighten in spite of the occasional crashing bass, but there is something rather aggressive that returns towards the end. The music quietens at the end and climbs again from bass to upper range then descends rapidly and ends quietly on a repeated bass note. I was really impressed by how uh, Carlotta Fuga kept all the voices clear throughout the work, particularly in the low end where th all the different voices remained well-defined. A very difficult thing to do in the bass end of the piano. These notes can all just blend together into some mm. you know, mess, you know, mess of sound, but uh, she does very well to keep all those voices clear. Very impressive playing. Okay, the uh, last sonata, piano sonata number three, written in 1980. So there I was in high school, and Sandro Fugo was writing his last piano sonata. <laughs> I think. I think this was the last one. I don't know. This one's played by Claudio Vogara, the only pianist who's not a member of the family. This one starts moderatamente lento to molto allegro. This starts with a series of short phrases with a syncopated middle chord. Um, it's, it's a three note phrase, but the, the middle chord, three note, three chords, and then the middle chord comes on like a syncopated, uh, beat. There's a bit of aggression and darkness in the theme. I'm <laughs> no surprise <laughs> there. Uh, which I'm coming to believe is characteristic of Santoro Fuga's work, or at least his, uh, piano writing. He builds a larger theme on this rhythm and chord pattern. There are lots of sequencing of the chords, and then new ideas growing out of that 
We're still more or less in the thematic profile at the two-minute mark when there's suddenly a false cadence that leads the thematic material in a more ethereal direction toward the high end of the keyboard. Nice moment here. Just after 2 minutes and 50 seconds, the first theme returns with a rolling bass accompaniment and builds into something rather turbulent at 3 minutes and 30 seconds, which dissipates again. Okay, so mm -hmm. this happens a lot in this movement. And uh, it kind of feels like the composer had a new idea and wants to kind of get rid of the old one. <laughs> but I don't—it's—it's it's part of this, his structural plan. But I like the—I like this kind of idea of his of how the music just kind of breaks up like that and goes into something new. The new material starts up. That starts up is familiar, and we get an interrupted line, some sinister bass rumblings another dissipation of the theme, then a rhythmic theme starts and dissipates, and at around 4 minutes and 50 seconds, we're heading toward the high end again, trying to break through to some new key or tonal area. It never quite gets there, and we're relatively in the um, same space tonally and thematically at the 6-minute mark. There's quite a bit of aggression in the bass. There are ominous chords in the bass at 7 minutes and 30 seconds, with a rhythm marking time and the right hand accompanying. By eight minutes, the material arrives at the high end of the piano with some ethereal chords repeating. This also suddenly stops, and we get the movement-ending uh, material. It's a build-up to a final statement that winds all the way down in a bass note that repeats three times. I'm wondering if there's more tension here than the otherwise excellent pianist builds up. Otherwise, he's excellent. He's really good. But I'm kind of wondering, if again, if there's like... More, not more excitement that's mm. not being released by the uh, playing. Okay. Oh, again, clarity in voices, and that's true in all three pianists. It's pretty amazing. All three of them seem to take a similar approach to mm -hmm. this music. It's kind of interesting. It kind of sounds sort of like they're all the same pianist in a way. All right. Um, the second movement has a lento a piacere and then goes to allegro spiritoso. This starts with a tentative sounding bass melody, um, opening this short movement. It's three minutes and 20 seconds. Then an active staccato fugue starts, which is maintained for a while. Uh, after two minutes, the music becomes homophonic, which means that there's a main melody and an accompanying bass line. So there's one melody that stands out from all the others. And remains that way till the end. A run to a lightly taken high note, pinned down by a lower chord. Third movement is lento, con raccoglimento. Slow melody with chords opens this. It's a very heartfelt um, theme. By the two-minute mark, this has made its way to the high end of the piano, where it's lightly played and is floating free with no bass underpinning it. It's a nice effect there, like it's broken free. By 2 minutes and 40 seconds, the music settles into the middle of the piano's range, with one theme going deep into the bass. By 4 minutes and 30 seconds, uh, a rhythm marking time has emerged in the high end of the piano as the thematic chord and melodic material is played in the mid-range with bass notes accompanying. The entire rhythm becomes the ticking motion at around 5 minutes and 20 seconds, the marking time. The music quietens, and the movement ends with a lightly taking chords in the high end, accompanied by an ostinato pattern in the mid-range. This is a pretty mysterious-sounding movement. Mm. And the final molto allegro movement is an active bass accompanying a quick-moving set of chords as the theme. 
the material morphs rather than develops, and we hear certain themes reappear in different keys or areas of the keyboard. When Fuga changes themes, he suddenly allows the old theme to dissipate, then starts up the new one, as though it's kind of run out of energy, sort of like a battery that died, and then he has to put like a new battery in that <laughs> does something else. The constant movement happening is pretty interesting. Themes are heard in different sections of the piano, and we get a lot of interesting piano timbres as the music moves suddenly between registers, sometimes with thickly laden harmony, sometimes with very little harmony accompanying themes. And I want to say, because of that uh, thickly laden harmony, this takes like a pianist who can really um, differentiate between the, uh, the different lines. And um, again, Volgara is excellent at this. This seems to be a quality necessary in order to put Fuga's music across well. Um, the movement ends with a pause, followed by a quickly and quietly played downward scale, landing on a bass note. So all three of these performances are good. Um, this sounds like a recording I'd need to get more familiar with, really. There's a lot more to it than I thought there would be, and uh, a first and second listening isn't going to be enough to pick up all that's happening here. Um, there's definitely a lot of content in this music. I certainly wasn't bored. Um, it's not light, but it's not unappealing by any means either. Uh, this is a composer I'd like to hear more of and get to know more about. Um, I'd like to hear this recording a few more times without the computer in front of me, you know, where I'm kind of listening and typing what I hear. I'd, I'd like to just kind of hear it casually. I'd also love to hear someone else play Sandro Fuga's music, like a familiar pianist, mm -hmm. whose style I have some familiarity with, because when you hear... These are probably the best pianists for a first performance of these works, as they knew the composer themselves. But say a, fam a famous pianist that's played a lot of music um, that that's been recorded um, will have a style, and I'd I'd kind of know more about how what his approach to the music would be like, and that would draw something different out for me. You know, not saying that it would be better, but it would just give me a different angle to think about the music with. But mm -hmm. this is a pretty interesting um, album, and um, it's a bit of a discovery. I really, I was very interested in it, to say the least. Yeah, my first contact with this composer, just to reiterate what I mentioned before, as a 20th century composer, compared to lots of the other composers at the time, he wasn't really striving to have new compositional kind of techniques, it seems. He's very mm. much using the standard developments and ideas that had come before, but in diff in his own unique ways. He has a few approaches that are a little yeah. different than what we've heard before. But the, the elements, uh, his toolbox is uh, what had come before him, uh, and uh, his technique is just different. Uh, and in that sense, it makes it very easy to come to this music with established ideas of compositions and things, and, and then find it pretty comprehensible the first time you listen to it. So I liked that part about it. It wasn't too out there. He does have a, you know, sort of... I, it is tonal, although it doesn't have necessarily a tone center all the time. It's moving around harmonically, but he, he's giving you cues with the harmony, uh, which is mm -hmm. nice. And I like that he also does appreciate, you know, some sort of uh, melodic development and uh, incorporating you know, some kind of pretty phrases in there. As far as his style goes, it seems that this uh, agitation is part of his... Uh, development for most of the pieces <laughs> finding yeah. something like an irritation that has to be uh dug out of the music and that usually starts like 
down or down and ends down low on the keyboard right. so it's it's sort of this kind of murky kind of thing and it'll often have these things cycling and building up out of the bass almost like ramping up and, and right. trying to escape something uh well it was kind of interesting that we could get a sense of his style just from these pieces i know uh, right yeah and uh so yeah um i i i, I found it really interesting and I found yeah. enough that I could hold on to just listen. I only listened to this one once, but yeah. uh, it was attractive enough that I'd like to explore it more and hear something else uh, that he's done as well. Uh, he's yeah. very good at building up tension, especially in the, I guess it maybe is maybe in the performer's interpretation in the last, the Sonata three in the third movement. I really liked the um, phrasing. Uh, it's almost this kind of weighted hesitation mm-hmm. Whereas the the keys become almost stuck or unwilling to respond uh, in the phrasing, and I, and I like that extra heaviness uh, in, in that. Uh, I don't know if it's in the score or he just interpreted it that way, but uh, uh, I, I liked all the the tension points that were built into the music. I found it interesting. So yeah, right. if you haven't checked out this composer, you might find it interesting. He's a composer that should be better known, I think, given these three works. And I think these works will repay repeated listenings. Um, There seems to be a lot more in them than... I mean, they're easy to grasp the first time you hear them, but I just felt like there's a lot I was missing that I kind of needed to hear it again and again. So we'll see where that goes. And now we're going to go into... uh, Italian jazz, which is a really happening thing. That's right. We've done a lot of Italian jazz on the program so far. And, uh, well, hence the title when we uh, put it up there. But uh, Piano Paisans. And (laughs) (laughs) from here on out, it's all piano. Uh, We had the last classical piano one. And we've done a lot of uh, Italian pianists and Italian musicians. Because there's so much happening when I go through the new releases too much is from Europe. I mean, jazz is, yeah. is American music, but the Europeans are really cranking out all these recordings, and uh, mm. a lot of great stuff is coming out of Italy uh, yeah. all the time. And uh, last year we had some nice discoveries. Our friend uh, Bruno D'Ambra, uh, his good recording last year that we featured. Uh, yeah, looking forward to a new one by him. Like, yeah, come on, great. Bruno. Are you listening? Uh, <laughs> get something new. We're, we're, we're going to talk about it right away as soon as it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. He's a friend of the podcast. Anyway, I've always got a lot of uh, Italian stuff on my list, but I wanted to just do uh, piano stuff this time. So I've got one that goes back a couple months, and then I've got two brandy new releases. So we'll go back, uh, start out with uh, this one that goes back to the end of March. This is uh, Italian piano trio, Ipocontrio. Mm. And uh, they're on the, uh, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say this label. It's... uh, it's written as capital A period M A. I don't know if they read it AMA or uh, AMA. AMA Edizioni, which is Italian jazz label, mm-hmm. uh, with the Ipecon Trio's latest release called Children's Soul. And mm-hmm. this uh, features the uh, great uh, Canadian tenor sax player, uh, Seamus Blake, oh. uh, who's uh, made a name for himself because uh, he's a really great play a wonderful tone and uh, exciting soloist. Uh, anyway, Ipocontrio, uh, this group itself is from uh, Salerno. They've uh, been on this record label since 2016 when they released uh, Continuum, uh, their first recording there. 
But they're back again for this latest release, Children's Soul. Uh, and uh, we've got in this trio on the bass, Francesco Garatro. On drums, Armando Luongo. On piano, Bruno Saracone. You got to do your uh, Italian accent there. Francesco Galatro. <laughs> that's more than an accent. That's a, <laughs> that's a performance. That's how we were talking at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, Bruno Salicone, <laughs> Salicone and Armando Luongo. I should have done the uh, the fuga like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And uh, we've got, uh, let's see, the, the sound engineer, Tulio uh, Siriello. And, I don't uh, have his name here. The producer, Antonio <laughs> Martino. Uh, and uh, this is all original music. Uh, and I should mention, uh, Seamus Blake is on uh, four of the tracks, two, four, five, and seven here. And we've got a variety of composers of among the group, uh, and I'll mention them as we go along. Uh, so we start out with the title track, Children's Soul. This is a Sadakone original. Uh, starts out really nice with a rubato piano intro. Uh, it you, you think it's going to be a ballad, but then suddenly a, a really unique beat uh, begins with this kind of pulsing three-note bass figures and really tasty snare kind of digging work from uh, Luongo. Uh, it's a unique rhythm. Uh, Salicone then gets to the melody. It's uh, nicely spaced out phrases, leaving that space we uh, talked about before. There's some syncopated and accented chords that lead to a pause and then a reset where Salicone gets to do some soling. Uh, Galatro and Luongo mix up the rhythmic feel, uh, so Salicone can really stretch out on a mixture of nice runs and then more rhythmic playing. Uh, and if you listen, the interplay in the trio is really good. They adjust to his ideas, his changing uh, rhythms, the accents are there. And so this ensemble really breathes. Uh, they're not you know, stuck into a metronomic kind of uh, tempo. Uh, it's the time stretches and matches what they're doing. Uh, it reaches a nice climax of chords. And then the original unique pulse of a rhythm returns for another run through the melody to a nice finish. Uh, nice opening track. Uh, I really like the rhythmic variety on this uh, recording. I think that's a strength of this trio. Yes, the album as a whole. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of... Um... Yeah, every tune has a... a its own unique feel to it, uh, which, you know, it's not just swing or straight Latin beat or something like that. Every, every tune's got this interesting uh, rhythmic concept, uh, as does the next one, track two, Daydreamer. This is a original by Luongo. Uh, Seamus Blake comes in here and he starts it out, uh, a rubato intro over the trio's fills. He's got this huge, big uh, tenor tone, but it's got a silky quality too. Uh, it's a really uh, intriguing saxophone sound. Uh, it's a yearning melody, and then the rubato kind of forms into a 6-8 uh, feel for this piece. Uh, Salicone is up first for a solo. Uh, he focuses on single clear note lines uh, with a light uh, chord accompaniment by his left hand. Uh, he's got a nice touch. He weaves melodic lines uh, that... The solo works through and ends up on a series of chords. Uh, then Blake is up for a solo. He's bluesy and breathy while still keeping a big sound on faster lines. Uh, underneath all of this, 
you'll hear the bass. Uh, I really like the string and woody slaps of uh, Galatra's <laughs> bass. Uh, it's got that real percussive quality to it. Uh, sounds organic and uh, real, keeping the rhythm flowing. Uh, Blake plays on and on with fresh ideas in his solo, uh, and then he ties it back to the melody, and they bring down the intensity a bit. It does build back up with some drum beats, uh, heavier hitting from Luongo under chord vamping that gives Blake a chance to stretch out a little bit more at the end. A uh, great range of tones that Blake can produce from his sax that you hear at the end. He goes from a fiery, intense, like, He's incendiary burning of notes down to like these smoky embers. It's sort of like uh, when you, you know, cut the air intake on the barbecue and just watch the coals kind of go out. Uh, <laughs> we have a yeah. lot of good metaphors yeah. today. <laughs> it's a great, he's a great player, yeah. turns emotion and sound on a dime to match what's going on there. Uh, so really nice uh, piece. I think we should mention also the, uh, the the piano solo in this. I thought it was pretty inventive. There were a lot of good yeah. ideas, and it. it was very long. He took a he took a pretty long yeah. solo in this, and it never yeah. really got uninteresting. These weaving um, melodic lines, uh, right? Just go on and on. Uh, really nice. I rather enjoyed the. Uh, there were there were some shouts of encouragement happening oh, in yeah. the background. <laughs> I think I mentioned yeah, that in this one too. Which up, I really but yeah, you you'll hear some. Uh, too. Yeah, a la yeah. Keith Jarrett grunting and uh, vocalist. Zations, yeah. uh, along the way playing uh, which always shows enthusiasm right. uh, track three uh, another or should I say another no the first uh, Galatro original called Spaceless Odyssey um, this one starts <laughs> with some round woody bass figures and uh, soft repeated notes with kind of piano sprinkles <laughs> I use that word too yeah. sprinkles <laughs> it makes like a wistful intro um, yeah there's a big slide down on the bass that uh, comes in and brings the melody in on the piano. Uh, it's off to a slow loping swing. And now despite the title of Spaceless uh, for the Odyssey, there's actually a lot of space in the playing here, which is nice. Um, Luongo is a tasty drummer, adding textures in the gaps of the phrases of the melody. And uh, yeah, as I said, Salicone is a bit of a mumbler uh, as he plays, so you'll hear his vocalizations. <laughs> cool, like yeah. Uh, yeah. Singing along with his ideas while he plays. In his solo, he hits on some really interesting staccato repeated note ideas. Uh, shows a lot of variety and dynamics among his lines and the chord hits. Uh, Galatro gets a solo next. It's very laid back. Uh, and then Salicone comes back in uh, with some more intensity for the melody. And Longo mixes things up underneath. Uh, on the drum kit. So they take it out with some repeated piano figures, which soften as the bass joins in unison. Uh, very nice. Track four, a Salicone original, Spirit. Uh, this one has some interesting harmony changes in a bass intro uh, that brings back Blake on sax for this cool kind of modally moving tune. It has an interesting final section of the melody that contrasts because it has a lifting melody it sort of uh, cycles up. I like how all the tunes have these very different rhythmic feels. This one has cool subdivisions of the beat uh, that are, you know, you can hear really clearly. Uh, Sally Cone's solo here, spacious again, uh, modal ideas and big open chords uh, going through. And when uh, Blake 
comes in on his solo. He really weaves through these uh, modal changes with interesting lines. He hits some intense high register bluesy ideas uh, and the beat is really chugging under his uh, solo. So the, the rhythm section is really driving him on. Uh, he brings it down a bit on the contrasting section and then ties it into a final melodic ending. Uh, so interesting and fun piece again. Uh, another Sadakoni original track five, Orione. Drum intro here is uh, starting us out for a fast kind of post-bop style tune. Uh, Blake spaces the melody out nicely over the fast beat underneath. So there's a real contrast in the melody line uh, and then the kind of churning rhythm section underneath this one. And Galatro gets some cool ostinato uh, bass figures going under there. Uh, Blake comes out furiously from the solo break. Uh, with some real fiery phrases. Uh, Longo gets a drum solo broken up with a piano and bass line uh, in the middle there. And then uh, Blake is back for another run through the melody and they play it out over quiet vamping and bass figures with some soft sax noodling. Uh, it's a really intense tune rhythmically. Uh, a lot of fun on this one. Hmm. Track six, uh, Galatro original, When She's Not Here. So this has got a longing melody uh, ballad played by Salicone, uh, but drums and bass have some contrasting intense business uh, underneath that that pushes it along. So there's a different kind of intensity uh, in the bass and drums compared to the piano. Salicone rings out the notes, uh, getting a f uh, nice feeling out of the uh, minor mode that's going on there. Uh, the interplay with Galatro's bass lines is like a dance together between the piano and the bass. I feel they're really locked in and like moving step uh, step by step together. Uh, Galatro gets a solo of his own. Uh, fast running lines on the big bass, big bass sound he gets. Uh, and then Salicone takes uh, the melody out. Uh, all the while, Longo has been trying to drum it into something even more intense but he finishes with Salicone on soft cymbals. I, f I feel like the, 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 the way it's contrasted, the, the drums seem like they want to beat this tune into something, you know, bigger. Uh, so you always feel like it's going to burst out into something, but it doesn't quite uh, do that. Uh, so it keeps this kind of uh, tension uh, in the, the <laughs> rhythm underneath raps for the whole song. It's kind of an interesting effect. Uh, track seven, Light Mood. Uh, this is a Salicone original. And uh, Blake is back again on this one. Uh, again, another new interesting rhythmic feel, shifting syncopated bass patterns under the wispy sax line. Uh, it builds into an intense climax of the melody line before coming down to that maybe title referred to Light Mood uh, with Salicone playing a soft interlude before uh, Blake's solo. Alongo has a nice groove uh, going for Blake to stick his lines to, uh, and he blows another really burning sax solo here. Uh, it's a nice uh, climax uh, for the soloing on the album. Piano and bass then vamp around for a pattern uh, for Luongo to play a bit, and then Blake joins uh, back in for the final phrase to end it. And yeah, it's nice kind title of, there too. Yeah, <laughs> the late mood is kind of appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's all you get here. Uh, there's actually another track, uh, the Clifford Brown original, Da Hood, uh, but it's not available on streaming. Uh, so hmm. 
If you want to hear that one, you're going to have to buy the CD. No. That's, At least it's that's, so it, that's the way it should yeah, be. It kind really. of should be. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I checked. It's not on Deezer. It's not on Spotify or Apple. So it okay. uh, seems like it's not released there. All right. Yeah. So that's right. a really good uh, release here. This is a great trio, especially. Uh, rhythmically and in you know in intensity uh they've got a lot of every tune has a different feel all original compositions good stuff and blake's tenor just you know adds another fiery kind of component to it uh, so i can really recommend this it's exciting uh, recording of music children yeah me soul. too i i found the uh playing to be extremely tasteful and i mm. always like that yeah. it's very uh yeah it's got a lot of decorum to it, mm-hmm. and it made me feel uh, just happy and comfortable. Okay, yeah. it was just a, it was just a good listen, really enjoyable. You get that uh, Italian sense of melody, shaping the melody in this. I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, on to the next one, a new release uh, coming out uh, at the beginning of May here by Lorenzo De Finti, yeah. and uh, he's got his uh, quartet here on a new release, Mysterium Lunae. And this is on uh, Lawson Records. And uh, this is this quartet's uh, third studio album. It uh, features all original tunes here. They're credited both to uh, De Finti and uh, the bass player uh, Stefano Daora. And uh, De Finti began playing piano uh, at a young age. I think he was like five years old or so. Then he continued to study piano, eventually uh, going on to the uh, Conservatory Giuseppe Verdi of Milan. And uh, he uh, also uh, studied around internationally, uh, also spent some time at Berkeley in Boston as well. So he's uh, kind of on the international jazz scene. And here, uh, as a member of his uh, group, as I said, the other composer credited to these tunes, a Stefano Dallora on bass, a very uh, unique sounding trumpet player and flugelhorn yeah. here, Alberto Mandarini. Now, Mandarini is a professor of jazz trumpet at the uh, Conservatory of Verdi in Milan, so I imagine that's where they met. And he began a musical career uh, at a young age. He was also a symphonic player in the uh, REI Symphony Orchestra of Turin, and also the uh, Orchestra Internazionale d'Italia uh, and some others too. So he was a firm player uh, in classical trumpet, which you can hear in his sound because this huge dark uh, <laughs> trumpet sound uh, in there. And uh, rounding out the group, Marco Castiglione on drums. Uh, so that's the quartet here. Now this uh, album is a kind of... Uh, more there's some things i don't understand about this and i'll get to it which is in some of the sound production of it yeah i had um, some interesting comments about this too yeah uh, we start out with the title track mysterium lunae uh this begins with like a rippling wave of piano figures uh and then a warm and longing bass line uh almost classical to, really yeah yeah to which uh, mandarini comes in on a legato melody on the trumpet well, symbols subdivide underneath. The emphasis goes back to the bass line while the trumpet softens. And then next it builds up into a big theme with a rock beat 
and synthesized chords. Now, this is the really weird thing um, about this. I'm not sure where these chords are coming from. Mm. Um, And I'll explain that more in a minute. Uh, The last track on this album is the same as this first track, but it's the studio video recorded version, which you can see on YouTube. And so it's almost like this. It's slightly different, but you'll notice that... um, it's not quite as Hollywood as this one is. Yeah, uh, DeFinti is just playing acoustic piano, but it seems to me that the bassist is using some sort of effects throughout this album to get mm. a sort of uh, string ensemble and then some other tone. So I'm not sure about all the synthy sounds on this album, if they're overdubs on keyboard or or whatever, because there's quite a lot of synthy kind of texture, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so much here. Um, anyway, um, the this rock beat comes in and these kind of synthesized chords uh, build up. So I'm not sure if they're keyboard or somehow through a bass effect or, or, or whatnot. Anyway, a lighter section then features acoustic piano, uh, and then back uh, to full-on uh, playing with the trumpet. Uh, it becomes sparse and intimate then for Delfinti to solo delicately with a nice sense of touch. Uh, his attack gradually intensifies as his lines get speedier, and then the big backing uh, builds up again with synth sounds and trumpet. Uh, once again, it gets sparse for Mandarini to build up a trumpet solo. Uh, he also starts softly over little piano figures, uh, and then it gets more animated. He has this huge but dark tone <laughs> to the trumpet, a uh, very unique tonal characteristic. Uh, after the climax of his solo, it comes down softly, returning to the rippling piano figures from the beginning and slows to a quiet end. What the, what the trumpet actually plays kind of put me in mind of a lot of the pop trumpet like i was thinking chuck mangione and his more mm. pop phase or jerry yeah. rafferty's song baker street you know that was a sax though i think uh. but um that, that that sort of melody it's sort of it's come they're comfortable and they fit into like a pop yeah. um yeah so I, that happens throughout the album too i mean it's it's, right. it's kind of like a i guess you'd call it a fusion album yeah it's got way. some it, yeah it has a lot of classical influence, but also yeah. like that kind of rock fusion kind of right. element uh, in, in those sections in that tune where it builds up. The the drummer gets a, a real kind of rock uh, feeling going and you get this huge denseness, almost like progressive rock kind of layers of sound that kind of like swell right. up. Um, and there's some more things going on with the bass uh, I mentioned as we go on. It gets <laughs> okay. this like otherworldly bass presence, like... <laughs> It's like (laughs) the bass has become 10 feet tall or something. It's descending Um, from the ceiling. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Track two is called Mystery Clock. Uh, This one begins with a simple rhythmic piano figure uh, that DeFinti repeats and then starts to harmonize. I think here again there are synthy strings added unless it's a very high bowed bass. It sounds more cello-like, though it Mm. has to be in the very high register. Uh, Then plucked bass and light drums join in on the pattern. Uh, interestingly, it's a pattern of nine beats. Uh, this oh. is a really challenge to figure out what's going on here. It's seemingly a measure of four and then five, uh, but interesting uh, rhythmic thing going on here. Uh, Mandarini joins in on trumpet. He works in unison with the bass line, which is kind of a cool effect. Uh, Definti plays a sparse transition section to the next part uh, that also has a trumpet line, and then it returns to the original figure to build up into a repeat of the trumpet and bass theme. It works 
into a piano solo section. Uh, there's a lot of space, and DeFinti focuses on articulation and clear figures and runs. Uh, the time now in the solo section is a straight 4-4. Four, four. Uh, gets into a regular groove. There's some swirling string sounds added to the background here. Again, are they added later on the, with a keyboard, or is it a, a string effect? I'm not sure. Uh, Dalora gets a bass solo over DeFinti's rhythmic backing, and the 9-beat feel has returned again now. His sound is huge, huge <laughs> and round. Uh, and then after <laughs> that, big sound. Yeah, Mandarini gets a trumpet <laughs> solo. The energy builds up with heavier drumming behind his lines. It starts to quiet down into a few of the original piano figures and some final soft trumpet lines. I didn't, I didn't get that nice, like, dipping my toes into the bass pool effect that you get from the organ pedal though yeah yeah That's i want a, a bass different. pool installed in my house <laughs> bass pool. to invent it first it's a new idea i like yeah, it yeah invent it track three whispers from the end of the world uh this one starts with very spaced out piano chords uh continue on till Mandarini joins in with long legato melody notes. I think he's on flugelhorn here, making his already fat sound practically obese. This <laughs> is an impossibly big trumpet sound this guy has. Uh, there's a kind of shimmering string line in the cello range. Uh, is it that bass that's being bowed again uh, with some effect? I'm not sure. Uh, trumpet is out for the next section with delicate solo piano lines and bass adding pulses over light cymbal work. Dalora has a bass solo feature next, getting some big bluesy licks that work into the upper register and then back down again. It's very groovy and melodic. Mandarini's next on flugelhorn, mixing flowing lines and cool interval ideas over the changing modal harmonies underneath. Uh, after some tinkling piano and a pause, it then returns to a sparse piano and flugelhorn theme with some bass bowing textures to softly finish it out. Track four, Tiny Candle in the Storm, in parentheses, Shining on Us. Sounds like the water <laughs> would extinguish it. But anyway. Uh, I mean, you would think. But... Sparse, but densely voiced piano chords. Start this one. Trumpet and bass come in on a pickup to a slow melody, but there is busy drumming uh, dividing the beat underneath. Uh, Mandarini plays the la very legato theme and uh, DeFinti adds punctuations underneath. There's a repeated high bass plucking figure with some effects that gets a bit hypnotic. Uh, there's, I'm not sure it's not, you know, this is uh, uh, a manipulated tone, so it's hard to tell what quite is going on. But uh, Mandarini works over this kind of uh, very rhythmic thing uh, into a frenzy of a solo with lots of chromatic ideas mixed in. Uh, Piano chords, drumming, and more synthy sounds come in as it builds and builds. Eventually, it deflates. It just kind of into a quiet start for a piano solo. Uh, DeFinti plays interesting fleeting but rhythmic lines, builds his solo back into a return of a section of the trumpet theme. Uh, then it comes down quickly again into a bowed bass section uh, that builds up as Mandarini joins in with other synthy backing and tense drumming. Uh, that gives way to some solo bass plucking with a lot of reverb over piano chords and then some kind of cosmic wind sound that blows through to the end. <laughs> ah, that cosmic wind, yeah. so familiar to yeah. us from so many recordings. <laughs> Either that or it sounds like an effector pedal with lots of background noise through an amp. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, yeah, it's a sound there. 
The uh, Cosmic Wind. Now, track five. Uh, I'm not sure how we read this one. Minuio Eni Arfent. I don't know yeah. what language that is. I don't know what it means. Yeah. Uh, it could be a dialect. I'm not sure, could though. Could be. I can't yeah. really tell. Where, where are they from? They're from uh, oh. Sardinia or no? No, I'm not sure where. Uh, uh, I don't know. He's, it uh, could be. I don't know. Yeah. All I know is he studied in Milan, so. Okay, well, not that's, sure. not, that's not from that no. area. <laughs> uh, this one begins with a rhythmic piano part uh, and a bowed bass melody. It sounds like a lullaby with a skip in it. <laughs> like the hmm. baby baby's bottle was spiked with some vodka or something. I couldn't figure <laughs> out the, uh, the meter, actually. But the piano figure is like in alternating five and then seven beat phrases. Yeah. Um, it could be just a... As I went on to listen, I thought it might be just like a oddly accented 12-8. Because that's what it sort of works into later. Um, okay. But it, it's got this lullaby quality, but then, <laughs> you know. With a hiccup uh, at the yeah, end. Yeah, hiccup <laughs> in it. Yeah, the baby's got hiccups, yeah. basically. Uh, the mm -hmm. trumpet joins uh, with a counterline to this, uh, to the bass melody, and then it shifts to the focus on the trumpet. The rhythm stops under the long trumpet lines. Uh, next is a piano, uh, a solo piano section. It has more... Uh, even slow three beat feel to it. So maybe the previous section is actually subdivided 12, as I said, with odd accents. The piano builds up into some percussive chords. Then it returns to the rhythmic patterns with uh, the return of Mandarini for a trumpet solo. And after that, it quiets down for some bass bowing, working together with a trumpet over the rhythmic piano that suddenly takes a strange harmonic twist <laughs> a real <laughs> twist and then it fades away uh, so uh, it takes you out of that lullaby into some uh, nightmarish things that might happen but you don't get to see where they go uh, and then the final track uh, is mm. the Mysterium Lunae video edition uh, so it's another version of the title track uh, but this is studio live version so if you want to you can hear this one in CD fidelity while you watch the YouTube uh, and see the actual performance of it. Uh, yeah, overall, it's a bit produced for uh, something that I would usually pick for the show, but I enjoyed it. Uh, it was excellent, excellent musicianship and good interplay. Uh, interesting ideas for changing up rhythmic meters and feels, again. Uh, I was kind of uh, intrigued by Mandarini with this one of the fattest trumpet sounds I've heard. <laughs> and uh, he has really... I think that's the recording, though. I don't think it's really... Uh, I don't know. I looked oh, at no. his equipment. He's got one of these, like, huge, um, like, one-piece um, new... These new kind of uh, mouthpieces that uh, trumpet players use these days. And uh, okay. I, liked, I liked his um, solo ideas and flawless technique. Uh, the bass on this is a little bit the 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 tonal manipulations and things make it larger than life it's sort of like the god of bass has uh, emerged <laughs> from the recording with some of the uh reverb and things uh but yeah it, it's kind of cool it, it all works he has bestowed to, his bass gifts on yeah. us <laughs> yeah, but i really I, I liked it it was this warm glowing sound i mean i like definti's piano playing as well it's got a nicely articulated touch and there's some interesting compositions it's going for something uh you know, not traditional jazz 
but uh, incorporating yeah. some classical background and other things. So he has a variety uh, in adjusting. It's an exciting group. They get a, a, a lot of uh, big sound out of just four people playing. So Yeah, it's it's got a lot of uh, like production on it, and yeah. um, that... It, it wasn't bad. I, mean, I didn't think it was too much production. I remember like a few weeks ago we heard one. I thought it was just way overproduced because everything just sounded like it was really shiny. And oh, the like Latin chrome. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. This one wasn't quite like that. Um, it was kind of a – I called it fusion. It kind of gets close to new age a lot of times. But um, oh, okay, yeah. when I think of new age music, I think of it as music that has a total lack of conflict in it. Uh, that's not the case here. This uh, this music has uh, little ant hills of tension that are completely dispelled by the warm, reassuring playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I mentioned Chuck Mangione. I thought about him and mm-hmm. his crossover music from the '70s. Right. Um, it has that kind of like vibe to it. Um, the, the, the it gives it. There are some tricky rhythms, as you said, in it too. Um, the album, in a, as a whole, gives a sense that all is right with the world and healing is happening as we speak and uh the album is harmonically and melodically reassuring i didn't dislike it but i mean mm-hmm. it's not something i'm gonna really go for you know i don't i don't like to be too reassured what's <laughs> going on out there all right <laughs> so if you want something reassuring this would be a good one i guess yeah i guess yeah okay. yeah it's not bad it's uh just a little different uh yeah produced more yeah, the well, productions like this in jazz kind of put me off a bit, right. but, um, you know. Well, we're going to go all organic uh, for the last one here, and yeah. uh, we'll save the uh, elder statesman of European piano, maybe in general for the jazz world. Uh, this oh. is uh, the great Enrico Pieranunzi. Yeah. Uh, and, well, I'll get to his compatriots here, but he's the... Uh, the nameplate on this from Storyville Records with Something Tomorrow. This just came out uh, May yeah, 6th. The name of the album is Something Tomorrow, I should mention. Yeah. Yeah. It just came out May 6th. And uh, Pieronzi's been on our podcast before. Actually, episode one, going all yeah, the way back to when we started. Episode. I heard this uh, last recording well. uh, on our Hello World's uh, first recording. Uh, that was uh, The Real You on uh, Stunt Records. Yeah, that was that. Was that with Fonz back too? Yeah, it, it was. was. Yeah, it was, it was with Fonz back. Uh, music, uh, the yeah. bass player here, uh, Danish bass player, uh, fabulous mm-hmm. player. And then uh, we did another Pierre Nunzi in uh, episode two, and that was Afterglow <laughs> with Bert Joris. Yeah, uh, and here he is out again uh, this year, in a trio format, uh, again with Thomas Fonz back on bass, fabulous. Uh, Danish bass player. We heard they play him. so well together. Really, yeah, too. They the do. ensemble's fantastic. Yeah. We heard him with the was it what's her name Sin Eeg or Sin Eeg. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah. was fantastic. Very too. nice yeah. vocalist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lovely voice. Uh, seems like a lovely woman. Uh, but here, they're in trio format, so we get some drums here, and we've got the French drummer Andre. Yeah, Checarelli, I think. Checarelli, double Just two C's. Yeah. Uh, Checarelli. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a K. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. F- French and uh, Italian fusion name there. Uh, anyway, nice trio thing here that works out. Uh, this is just beautiful. So Pierre Nunzi, this you is know, a great record. Yeah. All the way through. I'll just say right at the beginning. <laughs> he, he's one of the most well-known uh, European jazz pianists. He's got 
a really interesting combination of uh, influences on his playing. You can hear a lot of Bill Evans uh, in his style. Uh, he did a lot of collaborations uh, with uh, Murakone, the film composer. Uh, played with Chet Baker, Lee Konitz, so he got you know known to American uh, audiences. Uh, so he's a big name and deservedly so. There's uh, a bit of a classical influence to his playing, classical too, influence, which I like. It gives it a lot, it gives his playing a lot of class. Yeah, uh, Fonesbeck yeah. has has played with him a lot, and uh, himself has played with uh, you know like uh, Monty Alexander. Uh, as we mentioned, Sinaig, uh and others. And uh, the drummer here, uh, Chikoretti, is a uh, big name on European jazz scene. He's played with Piernunzi before. Uh, also, uh, Enrico Rava, Chick Corea, uh, and with pop stars to Sting, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner. So he's a versatile drummer. Uh, very nice, subtle drummer, I should say, too. Uh, yeah. Rounds out this trio really nicely. And what's really nice here is we've got uh, almost all original compositions uh, for this program. We've got one uh, jazz standard. Uh, this is just, um, how can I say, mature artists playing with uh, no forced effort at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the music just comes out on this album. And uh, anyone who uh, even slightly likes jazz is going to find this album uh, really beautiful. Yeah, uh, I love this. This yeah. is nice. Right into the, this is going right into the CD collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to get this one too. Uh, we've got mostly Pierre Nunzi compositions here. Uh, we do have uh, one Faunus back and one uh, uh, Kurt Veal and Ira Gershwin tune. So mm. uh, mostly Pierre Nunzi, as is the first track called Those Days. Uh, Pierre Nunzi starts it out with a rubato intro, very light touch, just enough hesitation uh, to pull you in. Uh, bass and drums join in with a medium, even beat tempo, uh, lightly subdivided by Ciccarelli's snare brushwork uh, for the piano to go through the lovely melody. Fonsbeck warm and round bass adds a nice pulse, fills in the gap between the piano melody lines. Uh, Fonsbeck also has a heartfelt melodic solo after uh, Piernunzi's short uh, but subtle solo. Uh, they work around the melody again and it slows to an ending with a happy major chord and uh, a few more moving chords. Uh, it's a very pretty opening piece. Uh, as they play in this trio and with his original tunes, the lines between like where the melody and Pierre Nunzi's solo playing begin or end are not so clear. It's, it's oftentimes his solo just evolves as part of the melody and it's always extremely melodic anyway. So, and he's not a, a player who needs to show off at all. So mm -hmm. it just, sometimes the solo just becomes like an extended melodic development of the melody idea uh, I found. Uh, so it's sort of flexible uh, in the way that they structure the pieces. Track two is another Pianunzi original Perspectives. Uh, this was a swinging, syncopated chords uh, and a one-note bass line that build up tension of the intro in this one. You know, that doom, doom, mm. doom, the, the bass waiting for something to change. Uh, there's nice chord work uh, getting a groove going by Piernunzi on the piece. Uh, this one's all more about chords and groove than a real melody. There's not a lot of melody that develops. It's kind of a chordal thing that's going on. Uh, 
Tucarelli is there uh, with him on all the hits on the accents, which is nice. Uh, he's listening very carefully. It moves right into a bouncy bass solo from Fonsback. Then Pierre Nunzi is next uh, with a nice run into his solo that features lots of cool rhythmic ideas, turning and tumbling lines. And uh, Fonsback's groove underneath is really driving. Uh, he's a very supporting uh bass player to uh, what soloists are doing. They play around with rhythmic ideas and accents uh, to make an interesting ending uh, to this piece. Track three, another Paranunzi, Wave of Interest. This is a rhythmically fun piece. It's a swinging sixth-eighth waltz that seems to have other longer phrases of eight thrown in in places to stretch it out. Um, Piernunzi's phrasing and trickling notes are very tasty, and when his solo comes around, it actually moves into a regular driving 6th eighths swing uh, throughout the solo. Uh, listen to his action-packed left hand under the rapid melody phrases, along with some nice uh, tom fills uh, on the drums uh, underneath. And then uh, Fonsback gets an exciting solo full of rhythmic fun too. Huge tone, clean attacks, uh, and they all wrap it back into the melody uh, for a fun ending uh, to this piece. Uh, really intense locked-in rhythms and uh, good interplay. Track four, another Piernunzi, The Heart of a Child. This is a slow waltzing ballad with a pretty melody. Uh, Piernunzi shows off his light and clear touch with a little high trickling answering phrases to himself. So he's doing a kind of call and response thing uh, hmm. just in his own phrasing. Uh, Ticcarelli, uh, very tasty with little brush textures, brush textures underneath on the snare and cymbal. So he's like just scrubbing out these little uh, tasty things in between the phrases. Then Fonsback, another yearning melodic solo here. It really sings out of the bass. This guy can really make the bass kind of like, you know, yeah. it's like almost like an opera singer on the stage just opening up. Yeah, know. it's a very melodic uh, yeah. vocal quality. Very nice. Pianonzi then takes back the melody after the bass solo, a little more gentle than before, and they walk it into a nice pretty ending. Another Piranunzi, track five, Something Tomorrow, the title. Uh, this is kind of an energetic samba tune. Uh, nice work with Piranunzi's left hand and Fonsback's bass joining together with a cool syncopated rhythmic movement against the melody that's happening above. Piranunzi is one of these guys, his his hands are completely disconnected from each other. They can, they're operating by, you know, different... <laughs> parts of the brain they're completely independent right. I, love, I love that when yeah. parents can do that yeah he's yeah. really great at that uh it's a very happy sounding tune and then Pierre Nunzi takes it through a samba solo over pulsing uh uh this you know this samba you listen to the the driving bass that uh uh Fonsback has going uh What's really cool, though, is after a little syncopated riff section that plays off from part of the melody, it switches up to swing. And so then Fon's back walking and the cymbal rhythm is changed. Now it's a it's a fast swing. Uh, and so Piernunzi just goes off on that uh, into the swinging section. Comes back around to uh, Fon's back solo on bass and it stays in the swing. Uh, and they swing that back into the melody Again, this is a super fun tune. Uh, it's just mm. so much positive energy 
really makes you feel good. Track six. Now we're going to go to the only uh, Fonesback composition here, uh, What Once Was. Uh, a medium slow ballad that has a 12-8 feel to it. Uh, Pierre Nunzi shows a very soft touch on the melody uh, before he passes a long section of it off to Fonesback to make the, again, the bass just sings out the melody. Uh, he, he really makes that tone cry out. Uh, it has some interesting chord changes uh, in the progression under the melody. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Pierre Nunzi comes back. Some nice improvisations around that melody. Like I say, he his uh, division between when he's really soloing or just expanding on the melody are not so clear on all of these pieces. They're just nice. They just fit the music. Uh, the subtle rhythmic flow of his hands uh, bringing out the pulse in the meter is also wonderful. As I said, this is a four beat, but it's a 12 eight, meaning that each beat is divided into three. You know, da, 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 da. Like, if you listen to how he draws out the melody, you'll feel that underlying pulse even in just his hands on the piano, which is, you know, it's a real attention to rhythmic detail. Uh, very nice phrasing. And then they bring it to a soft and lovely ending. Uh, track seven, three notes, uh, another Pianonzi composition. Uh, as advertised, it's <laughs> composed of uh, two groups of three notes. <laughs> and they're couched inside of syncopated phrases that make the basis for this kind of fun and swinging uh, rhythmic tunes melody. Great brushwork on the drums here, and uh, Pianonzi's solo is supercharged with rhythmic playfulness. Fonsbeck works a fast-walking bass line in between, also adding in syncopated patterns. Uh, then he gets his own rhythmic math masterpiece of a solo on this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pierre isn't done yet, and he comes back for some more bursting solo ideas before walk, working back into the three-note uh, theme idea to wrap it up. Uh, lots of fun on this one, too. Uh, rhythmic uh, playground here uh, with uh, skillful, uh, agile players. Uh, turn eight, suspension points. Uh, Pierre Nunzi. Uh, now, this is a really nice tune that sort of breaks up what's been going on. Uh, it starts out with these rubato ringing piano phrases, cymbal uh, washes, long bass notes that make waves of music, and it floats this whole tune without a tempo uh, along as harmonies shift around the repeated notes of uh, Pierre Nunzi. So these, I think, suspension points are these notes that you'll hear repeated well the harmonic harmonies shift around them as like kind of these pedal uh tones that uh just stick between the uh different harmonic shifts so uh there's so rhythmically tight on all of the other swinging tunes on this album that this one sort of amorphously flows through is a nice interesting contest contrast to all those i thought uh, really pretty and flowing piece of music. And then, what is a French title doing? Je ne sais quoi. What is that je ne sais quoi, that unspeakable quality yeah, uh, about this I, tune? That I don't know what. Yeah. But you'll know <laughs> if you listen to it, because it's another fun, fun tune. Um, 
here. Yeah. Uh, you know what bugs me about this when Americans <laughs> talk, they'll say, oh, she has a certain je ne sais quoi, which literally means I don't know what. Why don't yeah. they just so she has an I don't know what? What did I got to say the French yeah, to her? Yeah, she's got a nice uh, personality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one, uh, I can tell you exactly what it has. Uh, it's got a long yeah. solo intro with trickling piano figures and rubato chords uh, that work into a chugging waltz tempo. Yeah, it moves right along, uh, joined by bass and drums, but Pianunzi gets that going, and they can't help but fall in. Uh, on this minor melody, that has got a lot of harmonic twists to it, too. Uh, lots of mm. forward motion in the rhythm. Fonz back another tasty solo, and Pianunzi working on some rhythmic magic interplay between his hands. What's he doing with his hands? you got to listen to this, uh, this guy. Uh, his hands are both able to do anything independently. Uh, great piano solo here. Go back waltzing into the melody again. Uh, when you think it's slowing down to an end, there's an unexpected modulation that extends into a little uh, ending phrase and finally some piano trickles to end it up. Uh, really fun. Uh, what it's got is rhythm. And speaking of having rhythm, Ira Gershwin, Kurt Real, mm. this is new. That's the name of the song. I didn't uh, know this track before. I yeah, it's kind of a jazz Kurt standard. Songs, yeah. um, playful and pretty intro from Pierre Nunzi. Some amazing runs thrown in there too. He gets a rhythm, a rhythmic swinging groove going, and the bass and drums join right in. Uh, Pierre Nunzi shows off his rhythmic and melodic mastery in his solo here. Fonsback has an exciting solo as well. And finally, we finally we get a drum solo here. Yeah. Uh, even this is a little if bit of a surprise, too. Yeah. You know? uh, even if it's broken up by uh, trading eights uh, only with uh, Pierre Nunzi. Uh, they come back swinging through the melody, and they have a little fun at the end of the tune. So what can you say? It's effortless mastery, fabulous trio interplay, tight swinging, melodic ideas, interesting original compositions all coming together without any need to force or overplay anything. Uh, any one of these tunes uh, could continue on for double the length and you'd still be just as interested and entertained. Yeah, uh, so much is, stylish playing, great yeah. ideas, wow. This is mainstream jazz as its highest level presented to us Americans by European masters. So yeah. uh, there you have it. Uh, just a great recording. Okay, when we say adult music, this is what we mean. Everybody should be listening to music like this. It yeah. was so good. It makes life feel good, even though it's not. I accept this one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I accept their their uplifting of my, my feeling here. This was really great. Yeah. Yeah, really right nice into recording. the uh, CD collection. I will have this when it comes out on CD this Friday, in fact, May 20th. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not out keeper. yet. Yeah. yeah, definitely a keeper. Yeah. It's out on only streaming so far. So there you have it. Piano Paisans. Uh, that's right. a good keyboard work here coming from Italy, as uh, most of the music coming out of there on any genre. These days, yeah, the jazz yeah. scene was a real big surprise for me there. It's really, yeah. really good. Uh, they've also become like um, great uh, period instrument players as mm -hmm. well. You know, like in the 80s and 90s, they were still doing that large orchestra yeah. of Vivaldi well right. England was doing all the English ensembles were doing all the period instrument work but now they've picked up on that right and they they really give it a real panache like a great melodic uh, flavor all great yeah. I really love it 
Yeah, uh, good stuff here on episode 63 of Adult yeah. Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And uh, I think we know what we're going to do next week. We're going to have a uh, kind of... Uh, we're going to go on with the, from uh, Piranuzzi here and do some more trios, aren't trios, we? Trios, all trios. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, almost all trios. My first okay. one isn't a trio, but two of them are. So. Okay. I've got trios yeah. with a couple guests, but and what I've done is, um, well, obviously in jazz, sort of the standard is the piano trio. But since yeah. we've done it today and uh, previous episodes, we've had a lot of... Uh, piano stuff it's going to be non-piano trios so that's okay i'll I've have got, a piano trio <laughs> i've got for you a uh, flamenco hmm. i've got a uh, sax uh, based trio uh, with no piano and uh, our favorite the organ trio oh fantastic got a new organ trio too so uh, yeah all non-piano trio trios for next week and a mixture of styles too it should mix it up from uh kind of uh, classic jazz, some uh, new style flamenco jazz, and then some soul jazz too. So uh, yeah, it should be a good time. Yeah, so I've got a few traditional and non-traditional trios, all unknown composers. So uh, tune in or give us a listen and we'll hear some yeah. new names. Clean your ears. New old and, names. Uh, some of them will be new, new names. Get ready for some new music. That sounds good. Yeah. All right, so that's what we'll be back for, for episode 64. Be sure to uh, check on Deezer or on uh, the Facebook page. We'll get that playlist uh, up early if you want to check out the tunes uh, before next week's episode. And uh, before we go, I want to say thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo, the eye catcher. Yeah. I hope it's caught some people's eyes on these new platforms, uh, Samsung and others. I hope people are picking up the irony too, and yeah. not thinking that we're we're a porno podcast yeah. or anything like I'm severely that. Severely disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so we've got a plan for next week, and uh, we've got a lot of good music coming up in future episodes. And until we see you for episode sixty-four, take care and keep listening. Mm-hmm.